Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Lynch law is all we have left. So help me God, I'd rather find either one of them killed by a tiger or a bear and gather up her bones and bury them, conscious that she had died in the purity of her maidenhood, than to have her crawl to me and tell me the horrid story that she had been robbed of the jewel of her womanhood by a black fiend. It had been the settled purpose of the leading white men. It had been the settled purpose of the leading white men of Edgefield to seize upon the first opportunity that the Negroes might offer that the Negroes might offer them to provide a riot and teach the Negroes a lesson, as it was generally believed. As it was generally believed that nothing but bloodshed and a good deal of it could answer the purpose, purpose of redeeming the state of redeeming the state from Negro and carpetbag rule. I would say to the senator that as long as the Negroes continue to ravish white women, we will continue to lynch them. We of the South have never recognized the right of the Negro to govern white men, and we never will. We have never believed him to be the equal to the white man, and we will not submit to his gratifying his lust on our wives and daughters without lynching him. I would to God the last one of them was in Africa, and that none of them had ever been brought to our shores, and I will not pursue the subject further. The poor African became a fiend a wild beast seeking whom he may devour, filling our penitentiaries and our jails, lurking around to see if some helpless white woman can be murdered or brutalized. I believe that they are men. I believe they are men. But some of them... But some of them are so akin to the monkey... Akin to the monkey... That scientists are yet looking... That scientists are yet looking for the missing link. 
The action of President Roosevelt. The action of President Roosevelt. The action of President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt in entertaining that nigger. Entertaining that nigger. And entertaining that nigger. Nigger will necessitate our killing. Our killing a thousand. A thousand niggers in the South. A thousand niggers in the South. Killing a thousand niggers in the South. Our killing a thousand niggers in the South before they learn their place again. 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 context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date friday august 7th 2015 so i have been told this is our seventh study session on stephen kentrowitz uh, biography ben tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. This is our seventh study session, and we're on chapter five. Chapter five, we should be picking up on page 181, uh, second paragraph, page 181. That's what we should be picking up for this week. Uh, we are closing in on the end of the book. Uh, maximum of three study sessions remaining after today. Uh, we are right at the finish line hope folks are hanging in and getting constructive information the audio clip that you heard at the beginning that was a collection of different uh clemson students uh that video came out earlier this year before the uh shooting at uh mother emmanuel ame church uh but they had been trying prior to that to change the name of tillman hall they failed but they put a video montage together taking uh clips from different speeches that former governor, former U.S. Senator Ben Tillman gave throughout his life, which I think is awesome. Uh, I have recited my favorite quote many, many times, and hopefully this week we'll get a few more. Lots to get to, so we will get right to work. Context of white supremacy. Again, this is Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. Audio segment number one, page 181. Although lynchings such as Peterson's defined white supremacist justice, they also revealed the limitations of white supremacy as a mode of governance. Talking out of both sides of his mouth, Tillman had learned to negotiate the conflicting imperatives of lynching and the law, but his tactical successes should not mislead us into thinking that Tillman had found a formula that would reconcile lynching with state building. Judge Lynch's carnivals demonstrated white supremacy's power, but they also made the actual achievement of Tillman's vision more remote by weakening the authority of the state government. In the end, Tillman's attempt to reconcile these gory spectacles with the appearance of state authority left him fatigued and annoyed, although he continued to assert that accused rapists should be lynched. At the end of 1893, he told reporters that everybody would have been much better satisfied if a recent lynching victim could have been hanged according to the law. The tension could not be resolved. As long as a man had to die, Tillman preferred it to be at the hands of the state rather than the mob. The Dispensary and the State Power Social conflict over alcohol provided Tillman with an opportunity to reconfigure the relationship 
between the mob and the state when South Carolina's temperance activists advocated the protection of the home against its enemies, they were concerned about matters quite distinct from lynching and rape. But Tillman's effort to address their concerns through state action ended up back on the terrain of state authority and mob law. When Tillman was nominated for governor in 1890, State Women's Christian Temperance Union leader Sally F. Chapin implored him to reveal himself as the deliverer for whom we have been praying, declaring that the WCTU recognized only two political parties, the party that stands for the home and the party that aims at the destruction of the home. She tried to work her devout moral definition of reform into Tillman's political and social reform program. I pray God, she concluded, you may have courage to carry your plans for reform into every cranny of the organ stable and make us once again a prosperous and happy people. This was not her first venture into politics. In the early 1880s, Chapin and others had followed the lead of national WCTU leaders in forming a small prohibition home protection party. Chapin had laid out her position on liquor as well as tobacco, gambling, extramarital sex, usury, and much else in her anti-reconstruction reform novel Fitzhugh St. Clair, the South Carolina Rebel Boy. The novel dedicated to the children of the Southern Confederacy attacked racial equality and vicious union officers, but it blamed the region's continuing economic crisis on white men's moral weakness. Only by giving up expensive and degrading habits such as drinking liquor could white Southern men take their proper places at the head of their households, their society, and their nation. Under Chapin, the state WCTU focused on persuading legislatures to provide stronger legal weapons against liquor and its site of distribution, the dreaded saloon. The social transformation sought by prohibition advocates might appear to offer a moral counterpart to Tillman's political economic program. Chapin, like Tillman, understood women's and men's roles as complementary but distinct and opposed women's suffrage. Do we not have three votes now, she asked, our husband and two sons? When Tillman came to power, Chapin sent him an inscribed copy of Fitzhugh St. Clair in hopes that he would adopt its priorities. But Chapin's notions of reform and the home did not precisely match those of the new governor, for Tillman consistently refused to endorse prohibition. At the April 1886 Farmers' Convention, Tillman's resolution in favor of a college for white women on the site of the Citadel was clearly an attempt to replace white women's political and social activism with a state-aided program of educational and economic self-help. If they cannot secure that prohibition, which would banish alcohol, he suggested, they can help banish that prohibition, ignorance, which now bars their sex in this state 
from occupations except sewing, teaching, and working in cotton factories. Despite seeming to applaud temperance advocates, Tillman asserted that outright prohibition could not and should not be achieved. Virginia D. Young, Chapin's rival for leadership of the women's temperance movement, received Tillman's assurance that he was not a habitual drinker and that he favored regulation of the liquor trade. He also gave her the discouraging news that he opposed prohibition on principle, believing that whether or not one drank alcohol was a question of individual freedom. Instead, Tillman sought a middle ground with temperance activists, since white farmers were split over prohibition for personal, philosophical, and religious reasons, temperance politics were a losing proposition for Democrats. Division over alcohol would injure both farmers' movement and the cause of white unity. Tillman warned that political clashes over liquor would set prohibitionists and anti-prohibitionist whites against one another at the polls. Tillmanite reformers thus took pains to avoid what one called the prohibition vortex, only fit to distract and disturb our social as well as political welfare. In private, Tillman and his supporters were less polite than they were in public about these meddlesome women and sometimes referred to committed temperance activists like Chapin as cranks. Temperance politics came to the forefront of state debate in 1892. After legislative failures in previous years, a non-binding referendum on prohibition passed the general election. Political good sense demanded that the legislature take some action and it debated a variety of bills. Tillman's solution was to diffuse the issue by offering a state-level reform that he hoped would satisfy both supporters and opponents of prohibition. Through his legislative allies, through his legislative allies, Tillman sought both to diffuse the threat prohibition posed to white supremacy and to expand the authority of the state government by creating a dispensary system, essentially a state monopoly on the sale of liquor. The state would purchase liquor at wholesale prices and distribute it to local retail outlets known as dispensaries, which would sell sealed packages to be consumed off the premises. A local dispensary would be established only after a majority of a town's freehold voters signed a petition requesting one. The only alternative to a dispensary was local prohibition. Any profits the system generated would be divided between the state and the municipality in which the dispensary was located. The law took effect on the 1st of July, 1893, and constables hired by the governor sought out violators. The dispensary system radically altered the distribution of alcohol throughout much of the state, replacing countless independent proprietors with a single state-run outlet. By September 1893, 47 dispensaries were in operation throughout the state. Most counties had only one, but Columbia and Charleston, cities with large populations, were legally entitled to several. 
Did the dispensary constitute a moral improvement over the reputedly degraded masculine culture of the saloon? Or would the dispensary corrupt the state itself? Opinion was divided as to whether the whiskey glass was half full or half empty. Supporters of the dispensary, included some prohibitionists, emphasized its wholesome social benefits. Chapin wrote that if Governor Tillman never does anything but close the bar rooms of South Carolina, he will have the thanks of thousands of women and children. The Edgefield Advertiser crowed the gilded bar rooms pitfalls for the feet of so many boys and young men will soon be a thing of the past and the youth of our state will be saved from the curse of rum. The dispensary struck multiple blows against the saloon, the devil's alternative to the home. It eliminated the allurements and enticements of alcoholic sociability and prostitution. It reduced crime and shooting scrapes, and it replaced the keepers of bars, men and women of uncertain character, with state officials who could be held accountable for their actions. But replacing bar rooms with dispensaries did not add up to prohibition, and the dispensary system drew criticism from many quarters. Both white WCTU members and a conference of black Methodists in Beaufort condemned the dispensary as too great a compromise of temperance principles. Some prohibitionists even turned to Tillman for aid against his own creation. Invoking Tillman's well-known earnestness in the temperance cause, the black WCTU chapter of St. Helena Island requested that he refuse any application for a dispensary on the island. Chapin and others in the temperance movement who offered support for the governor's compromise solution were sometimes voted down in their own assemblies. For some prohibitionists, the dispensary added insult to injury by turning a profit. Since dispensary revenues were divided between the state government and the localities, both state and local officials had an incentive to maximize sales. Tillman soon became aware that the appearance that state and local governments were profiting from liquor sales could set prohibitionists firmly against the dispensary. He acknowledged the wisdom of Georgetown allies' recommendation that he should take influential temperance people into account, soft pedal the revenue generating feature of the dispensary, and insist that every official connected with that law at present should pose as a conservator of temperance. More significantly, Tillman cautioned allies like Barnwell Democrat S.G. Mayfield, the judge in the Denmark lynching, that you have dispensaries enough in Barnwell County and it is offensive to the prohibitionists to press things so. The dispensary gave the governor power to make many local appointments, increasing his influence in county affairs. The governor and two other state officials made up the state board of control, which appointed county boards. These boards selected managers or dispensers who oversaw day-to-day -day operations and hired additional workers. Tillman was thus in a position to help determine who might or might not gain office from several high-salaried state officials to a dispenser and a few employees in each county. 
the law also allowed him to hire a large number of enforcement officers. Dispensary employment was a matter of patronage politics. Applicants for dispensary and constabulary posts recited their credentials as Tillmanite reformers. Many opponents feared that the dispensary would ultimately amount to an 800-man patronage machine for the reform faction. Even alliance men suspected that the dispensary was essentially a political machine and some suggested that dispensary officials be barred from politics. Tillmanites fretted about a possible coalition between frustrated conservatives and disgruntled prohibitionists, but Tillman could not afford to be too careful for dispensary positions were among the few he had to give. His attacks during the 1892 campaign had permanently alienated Grover Cleveland, the Democrat who is now president. As a result, Tillman had no control over the distribution of federal patronage positions in South Carolina, a loss of Boodle, one knowledgeable reformer reckoned at $250,000 a year. The disposition of collectorships post office positions and Washington DC sinecures ended up in the hands of Senator Butler and other anti-Tillmanites. The loss of patronage weakened the Tillmanites political cohesion and power. One man complained that he had lost a federal appointment because Butler had given it to a man he hoped to woo away from the Tillman faction. The woods are full of traitors, one Tillmanite cautioned another. The federal patronage is being used as bait to catch them. It has caught some and will catch a great many others. Ultimately, Tillman feared that it might catch the Senate seat he hoped to take in 1894. Squabbling and disorder ensued as factional rivals jockeyed for congressional seats and the opportunity to succeed Tillman as governor. Although liquor helped draw some men closer together, it drove others apart. J.L.M. Irby, who had replaced Hampton in the Senate in 1891, alienated many leading Tillmanites as he descended into an alcoholic confusion and paranoia that reached a climax in the summer of 1893 when he struck another reformer at a leadership meeting. Personal and political differences threatened to fragment the Tillmanites, but the larger contest against the money power and its servants in Washington, D.C., brought these men back together. Irby's paranoia was less noticeable when he spoke of national politics, for his allegations of persecution hardly differed from Tillman and other reformers' attacks on corporations and federal government. A conspiracy was at work, Irby declared, late in 1893. A deep-laid and desperate game by the money power of New York and the old ring poles in the state to overthrow the rule of the people. Tillman's charges were somewhat more specific, but he envisioned a similar degree of intrigue among corporate and political enemies who schemed against the dispensary. Interstate railroads, interstate railroad lines and their federal receivers, federal and state courts and federal revenue collectors all seemed to Tillman to be collaborating with the whiskey men liquor manufacturers, distributors who wanted direct access to the South Carolina market. As usual, Tillman rarely identified these men by name, but he charged that they thwarted the implementation and enforcement of the dispensary law at every turn.
Tillman's efforts to exert power over corporations symbolized the power of the state as an agent of reform, regardless of whether those efforts succeeded. He warned that if we are to permit capital to shirk taxation and corporations to dictate to the state in order to have money come here for investment, we don't want it. In contrast to investment-oriented capitalists who believed regulatory legislation would induce the best citizens to take their capital elsewhere, Tillman and his supporters sought to demonstrate that a small assertive state government could improve the lives of all white producers. In fact, Tillman's effort at state regulation produced mainly symbolic victories. During the late 1880s, he had leveled charges of corruption at the state-chartered monopoly on phosphate mining. As governor, he engaged in a lengthy legal wrangle with the mining company that produced no financial victory for the state, but earned him praise for being a foe of corporate greed. When railroad corporations refused to pay state taxes based on new substantially higher assessments of railroad property, Tillman defied state and federal courts and ordered county sheriffs to impound railroad property. He soon had to back down, but not before symbolically asserting the power of the state government, not only over corporations, but also over federal judges whose rulings he considered judicial tyranny. The capital-friendly Charles News and Courier called Tillman's momentary defiance of the courts states' rights run mad. But Tillman understood the political value of defiance of federal authority even when it failed, and his aggressive style and choice of targets endeared him to those for whom the money power was a palpable enemy. The Farmers Alliance state newspaper defended Tillman's course as exactly right, and one reform legislature summed up the relationship between defiance and independence. We either have to control the railroads or they control us. Tillman's claim that federal control meant return to reconstruction had been bolstered in 1889 when a federal judge appointed Daniel Chamberlain as receiver of the bankrupt South Carolina Railroad. Chamberlain, who days past did his utmost to throttle Anglo-Saxon civilization in South Carolina, had returned, Tillman said, to gloat over the state's humiliation at the hands of his obedient instrument, the corrupted judiciary which oversaw his receivership. When alliancemen and populists proposed ambitious schemes of federal ownership or regulation, Tillman perceived the threat of a return to Reconstruction. Any federal tool powerful enough to benefit Tillman's farmers could also be used against them. In the case of the government control of the railroads, Tillman feared that the resulting army of federal railroad employees would almost inevitably be used as an engine in elections by the use of the employees at the ballot box for the benefit of the party in power. The engine was already at work undermining the dispensary law. Railroads were the chief means of transport for both legal and illegal goods, and barrels of contraband liquor appeared at depots almost immediately after the law went into effect. The laws of the federal receivership that Tillman had found so galling in the tax cases continued to outrage him. 
He complained that whiskey in the hand of railroads run by receivers cannot be seized and proceeded against without warrant. He pledged to pursue this through the federal courts and lay the blame where it belonged with the collaborating forces of federal and corporate corruption. The struggle against this conspiracy was enough to fill a reformer's heart. We may fail, Tillman admitted, but in contending for right and justice, I will never consider either the course or the result. In 1893, anti-Tillman wage workers' democratic leagues appeared in Columbia. They declared the interests of capital and labor to be the same and denounced socialism and Tillmanism as well as Haskellism. Since railroad employees joined the organization, the governor thought he saw Chamberlain's corrupting carpetbag influence at work. The Edgefield advertiser referred to the wage workers as the wire workers, implying behind-the-scenes control by Chamberlain. This was Reconstruction Corruption Redux, for, as the advertiser put it, he's the same old Chamberlain that he ever was. The railway party in politics, feared by Tillman and others on a national level, seemed to be forming in South Carolina with the added dimension of corruption by anti-dispensary liquor interests. Before the dispensary law went into effect, an ally had warned Tillman that a local trial justice not only was a member of the wage workers and therefore presumably in the pay of Tillman's corporate and political enemies, but also gained a primary election victory due to the free use of whiskey and illegal voters imported here by the railroad company. By the time the 1894 elections approached, Tillman had concluded that the whiskey ring and the railroads would furnish a large corruption fund to be used in the next campaign. The nexus of corruption included the U.S. Bureau of Internal Revenue, which refused to cooperate with dispensary enforcement efforts and even seized whiskey that state officials had taken from smugglers. Once again, the federal government had proved itself to be a local arm of the money power. Tillman sometimes tried to reconcile the reality of white industrial wage labor with his ideal of white agricultural patriarchy. When poor men were white but not farmers, he turned, as in a speech to Columbia workers, to broadly defined producerism that championed the role of the laboring men rather than that of the farmers. He attacked the conservative men who challenged his slate in the 1892 Democratic primary, a mill owner and a baker, as agents of industrial and financial oppression. He implied that gubernatorial candidate John C. Shepard had used his position as president of an Edgefield bank to extort political support. Never mind that Tillman had supported Shepard in his unsuccessful bid for the governorship only six years before. He accused Shepard's running mate of earning his $7,000 annual income from the blood and sweat of women and children who worked 13 hours a day in his factory and of coercing his employees in supporting conservative candidates. But in Tillman's Republican vision, wage earners dependent on others for their subsistence were inferior precisely because they could be coerced politically in ways that land-owning farmers could not. During the 1892 primary campaign, a Tillman organizer in Spartanburg 
warned that at the factory towns they arranged it so as to keep the operatives from attending the meetings and only one mill held its meeting after night where the hands could vote. In 1886, the Charleston News and Courier had warned that common black agricultural laborers were credulous, ignorant, and suspicious, just the material to be as plastic as putty in the hands of shrewd and ambitious leaders. Now white laborers were also portrayed as willing or unwilling tools of scheming labor leaders who know the precise money value of the laborers vote to either party in any hotly contested election. For his part, Tillman suggested that his opponents, who were themselves owned by the corporations, had coerced or bought their supporters. Tillman's ambivalence about wage earners as independent citizens affected his understanding of the national labor struggles of the 1890s. He was no friend of socialist or redistributive programs, and he remained eternally suspicious of labor unions. He did sometimes side rhetorically with white northern working men. When violence erupted in 1892 after the managers of Andrew Carnegie's steel mill at Homestead, Pennsylvania, hired Pinkerton detectives to break a strike, Tillman declared that he would like to see every one of Pinkerton's men hanged. During 1894, in the depths of a national depression, he stated that Coxey's army, a band of economic protesters and reformers marching from Ohio to Washington, D.C., had the full sympathy of farmers. But Coxey's army was northern and economically dispossessed, and it made demands on the federal government. This unbecoming dependence made it an unlikely ally. During his 1894 campaign for the Senate, when Tillman claimed that Butler had hired crowds of men to boo him at campaign stops, he likened this disreputable mob to Coxey's army and called his opponent Coxey. Butler, a witty racism that he reported made the crowd scream with delight. In the face of the combined assault from corporate and federal enemies, Tillman sought a degree of control over local affairs that no governor had contemplated since Reconstruction. The centralization represented by the dispensary could be presented as a necessary bulwark against corruption, and Tillman followed suit in his reform of county government. Tillman's authority to appoint the officials who oversaw local finances and construction. The Charleston News and Courier called the proposed legislation a petty system of gubernatorial control of the counties, a means of making new offices for an army of unemployed reformers that would open the door for fraud in every county and township in the state. Many newspapers condemned such legislation because of the unbridled power it gave the governor. Tillman assured the bill's passage by establishing that governors would make appointments in consultation with the county's legislative delegation, thereby giving legislatures their own stake in patronage politics. He also recalled the commissions of every notary public in the state on the pretext that some unqualified men, presumably Tillman's black and white political enemies held the office. A friendly newspaper praised Tillman's sublime nerve 
in knocking the socks off 6,000 office holders at once. If it did not have precisely this effect, Tillman's action at least reminded local potentates that it paid to be on good terms with the governor. In the absence of federal patronage, Tillman created his own through control of state jobs and appointments. The Dispensary and the Mob The real conflict came when Tillman sought to enforce the dispensary law. The dispensary constable's work against contraband liquor took them to South Carolina's towns and cities where railroad hubs supplied scores of illicit barrooms known as blind tigers and where hostility to Tillman was most pronounced. There, the constables were widely referred to as spies. As they obtained warrants to search private residences, they encountered massive resistance from urban residents who claimed to be defending their households against outrageous government intrusion. The Charleston News and Courier declared that a man's home is his castle and reported townspeople's determination that no home shall be invaded. Home protection, a rallying cry of prohibitionists and an implicit message of Tillmanism took on a new meaning in this struggle for power over the public and private spaces of urban South Carolina. Although Tillman himself acknowledged that Anglo-Saxon blood will not submit to indiscriminate or warrantless searches, he cautioned that even though a man's home is his castle, he has no right to turn it into a saloon. Only guilty men, one commentator suggested, would mind having their houses searched for illegal liquor and only force could convince such guilty men of the governor's resolve. Assembling the rule of law, the police powers of the state, and his own political machine, Tillman took the battle over state power and the rule of law to his opponent's home field, the cities. Challenging their authority, where they appeared strong and he appeared weak, Tillman maneuvered them off the high ground of law and order and onto the streets. There, he proved to be more than a match for them. In the end, the dispensary war gave Tillman the opportunity to recast the troubled relationship between white violence and state power. The dispensary war divided anti-Tillmanites and Tillmanites along familiar, if not impermeable, lines of town and country. Although each side drew some support in every area of the state, Tillman was always at odds with urban leaders, and by the fall of 1893, pro-Tillman newspapers described resistance to the dispensary as urban intransigence. The country people had cheerfully yielded obedience to the law, declared an upcountry newspaper, and the recalcitrant city liquor dealers should be required to obey it. Those who refused would sooner or later feel the force of the law. The newspapers drew on the split to make partisan points. When the pro-Tillman Columbia Register cheekily suggested that constables' good behavior could be assured by bringing country people into towns to oversee their raids, the Charleston News and Courier responded with the complaint that that the Register was attempting to set town against country. 
by the mid-1890s, though few could have been surprised by rural-urban hostility or by its political edge. The antipathy between Tillmanites and urban Democratic leaders made enforcement of the dispensary law all the more difficult. When Tillman asked the state's mayors to help enforce the law in late 1893, he received a cool response. The mayor of Greenville, for example, replied that he would enforce it as much as he enforced any other law and that he resented Tillman's implicit questioning of his good faith. The mayor of Yorkville even prosecuted an Edgefield dispensary constable for drunkenness, threatening the man with three years in the penitentiary, but ultimately fining him as if he were a Negro charged with the same offense. The racial dimension of the enforcement of the dispensary law was not simply rhetorical. All of Tillman's regular constables were white, which made it difficult to gain information on or entrap black violators of the law. At first, Tillman had his men resort to the laughable expedient of blackening themselves like minstrels in order to attempt to purchase illicit liquor. Later, he hired a black detective from Georgia to infiltrate the whiskey ring. But enforcement of the law was mainly intended to demonstrate Tillman's authority over white urban opponents. He and his supporters generally assumed that black people were paid or otherwise induced to violate the dispensary law. Black men who brought liquor or attacked constables were frequently portrayed as the tools of white men. One Tillmanite warned that the real guilty parties have some Negro or insignificant white man between them and the law out of whom they are making cat's paws. Tillman's own schedule of rewards for liquor law violation convictions reflected his white supremacist hierarchy of legal responsibility and criminal importance. Convictions of whites brought a bounty of $20 or $25. Convictions of blacks, only $10. As usual, behind black criminality lay scheming white men. Sometimes the struggle over the dispensary reframed conflicts that otherwise might easily have been depicted in wholly racial terms. When a group of black men attacked constables at the Spartansburg dispensary, local alliance men, rural white citizens, focused their condemnation on the mayor, city council, police force, and unnamed disreputable white men actuated by partisan hatred against the reform movement who had encouraged and instigated the attack. According to the Alliance Men's version of the story, the real conflict was between rural and urban reformer and Haskellite as much as between white and black. The Alliance Men perceived a strong undercurrent at work in this city to override our state laws and wink at the conduct of outlaws. Although the Alliance men declared a natural pride in the prosperity and upbuilding of our county town, they threatened that if our laws are to be trodden underfoot by ruffians, black or white, 
and no protection given our farmers when we visit this city, we do not feel encouraged to bring our business here. It was possible, of course, to put a more traditional white supremacist spin on such reports and accuse the dispensary's opponents of being so reckless in their war against Tillman that they were willing to sanction black attacks on white men. Even dispensary opponents, such arguments ran, must see that the dispensary had become a race issue with all the rights of law and justice on the side of the white men as against the Negro desperados and their white sympathizers. Opponents took up familiar forms of collective action against the dispensary constables. A woman who boarded constables in her house was threatened by white caps. Attackers in Beaufort broke one constable's nose and showered others with what an elated anti-Tillmanite referred to as ancient hen fruit. Tillman complained that especially in Charleston, constables were treated in an outrageous manner by mobs. Almost all the people of Charleston are in league against the law and determined to overthrow it, he told the legislature. Indeed, following an unruly indignation meeting against dispensary law enforcement in Charleston, a large crowd of opponents marched on a house where three constables were boarding. Tillman's chief constable saw trouble ahead and called for more men and heavier guns. These and other incidents led Tillman to speak of a dispensary war. In response to assaults on constables during the first month of the dispensary's operation, Tillman warned conservative reporters that he had armed his men and ordered them to shoot the first man that strikes or interferes with one of them from this moment on. I am not going to allow the officers of the state to be made dogs of by a set of barkeepers and roughs. The law is going to be enforced. If it results in killing somebody, it will have to be done. That is all. After constables shot two white men, killing one while attempting to search for contraband liquor, Tillman grew more strident and seemed to threaten to impose martial law to uphold the dispensary. He reflected aloud that Charleston's own militia companies were ready to assist in the enforcement of the laws of the state, so I'll not have to send troops there from Edgefield and Aiken and other counties should the occasion for a military force arise. He blamed the Charleston News and Courier for urging resistance to the laws. Given the willful recklessness of the dispensary's opponents in compromising white supremacy and good order, one commentator found the governor justified in fighting the devil with fire. When the conflict turned deadly, the News and Courier renewed its charge that Tillman was the mob law governor and held him responsible for the spirit of lawlessness that prevails among his followers. The governor, it editorialized, cannot expect the people to respect the law when he does not respect it himself. It contrasted Tillman's aggressive campaign against illegal liquor with his apparent reluctance to prosecute lynch mobs. Is whiskey thicker than blood in his sight? Asked the Charleston paper. 
no longer limiting itself to caustic denunciations, the paper warned that Tillman was challenging mob violence by the very violence of his own conduct. Personal and factional honor were now at stake, and in the affair of honor between the Tillman administration and the urban leadership, the latter refused to back down. In 1894, the dispensary war came to a violent climax in the town of Darlington. The town was located at a railroad junction in the northeastern section of the state, and its economy depended on interstate traffic, including liquor. During the 1891 legislative debate on a prohibition bill, a Darlington County representative had declared that if prohibition passed, the flourishing town of Darlington would be utterly destroyed. As early as November 1893, supporters had referred to Darlington as a hellhole of blind tigers and anti-Tillman sentiment, and the town quickly became a center of resistance to the dispensary system. In March 1894, Tillman supporters in Darlington warned him that something serious was brewing. After receiving reports that illegal liquor traffic in the town was open and pervasive, Tillman warned the mayor that traffic must be suppressed, and he threatened to take dispensary profits away from the city as of the 1st of April. Tillman's constables arrived in Darlington, intended to make searches under warrant. Groups described as men with guns, mobs, and crowds appeared threatening the small detachment of constables. Tillman sent reinforcements and called out a militia company. Calm was restored until moments before the constables were to leave Darlington by train when gunfire broke out at the depot between the constables and hostile white Darlingtonians. After killing a civilian, the constables fled and suddenly the mob law governor found the tables turned. Angry townspeople fired into the train on which some of the constables sought to flee and chased other constables into the woods. The Darlington dispenser wrote to Tillman that all the men have left town on horseback to hunt and kill all the constables they can find. They have telegraphed to Sumter and Florence telling the people there to stop the constables at any cost. Amid conflicting reports of who had fired first, how many on each side had been killed, and the fate of the fleeing agents of state power, Tillman made good on his long-standing threat and mobilized the state militia to put down the Darlington disorder. Enraged opponents called on the militia to refuse to mobilize for this coercive work, and some did. Tillman, though, had the powers of the state on his side. He took control of the telegraph offices, forbidding the transmission of any inflammatory telegrams or those calculated to further increase the excitement. He forbade the railroads to provide trains to anyone but officers of the state. He sent loyal militia units to Darlington and Columbia to protect the dispensary, the constables, public order, and the authority of the state. He ordered people in open rebellion to disperse, including Columbia citizens, who had been reported heading to Darlington to pursue the fleeing constables. He attempted to retrieve the state arms and ammunition belonging to the mutinous militia companies. With militia companies on the steam, 
and the constables accounted for order was restored in Darlington and throughout the state. By the 6th of April, Tillman declared the emergency over. The political and social conflict, however, lasted much longer. The Darlington riot became the polarizing issue of the 1894 political season, drawing the battle lines between reformers and anti-Tillmanites more clearly than ever. In part, these lines followed well-established patterns. One populist-leaning reform congressman regretted that feeling between the town folks and country people is so intense, but he pitched his tent with the rural white majority and the governor they supported. The Edgefield advertiser even suggested that the dispensary system itself deserved credit for the speedy and relatively benign resolution of the crisis. Had barrooms been in existence in South Carolina during the excitement of last week, it explained the streets of Columbia would have been full of drunken men, rioting, raging, frenzied citizens and soldiers. Blood would have flowed like water. As it was, Tillman had ordered the dispensaries shut, liquor had dried up, and most white men had apparently behaved reasonably. In the aftermath of the Darlington riot, both Tillman and his opponents sought to claim the legacy of 1876 and portray themselves as the latter-day red shirts. The Charleston News and Courier declared that Tillman had destroyed the harmony of 1876 by seeking the rule of his class without regard to the rights of others. Opponents criticized his use of Reconstruction-era emergency powers, calling him low enough and mean enough to use against the white people a statute passed for the purpose of intimidating the white people by a set of Yankee carpetbaggers and niggers. According to a bitter editorialist, Tillman's use of the militia to guard the state house and state dispensary in Columbia was the first time since 1877 that a city in South Carolina has hundreds of troops quartered in it under command. One writer privately considered assassinating the governor. Another, former Governor Johnson Haggood, best framed the horror Tillman evoked. With much ability, he combines a disregard of law that looks like incapacity to conceive its obligations and a recklessness of all save his personal ends that looks like insanity. He called Tillman's course lawless and tyrannous. According to these opponents, Tillman represented the evils of Reconstruction and the anti-constable mobs were liberty-loving white patriots. Tillman, though, claimed to have protected both the rule of law and the violent victory over Reconstruction. As the crisis ended, he stood in front of the State House and, like his adversaries, compared the white unity and harmony of 1876 and 1877 to the chaos of April 1894. When South Carolina learned in 1877 that troops had seized this house, within two days' time, this whole escarpment back to the monument was black with indignant citizens. I was among them, but they were all of one mind, he recalled. The contrast with present was all too telling. Today, 
we find the state divided into two hostile camps because the minority are not willing to let the majority govern. He blamed the conservative press for the division among white men, denouncing the poison and newspaper lies intended to keep open the sore of the fractious 1890 and 1892 campaigns. Indeed, he suggested that the conservatives had sought unsuccessfully to provoke an explosion, a civil war. Fortunately, it had not come. It could not, because the people are in the saddle and will continue to remain there. In quelling the riot, the state militia had recapitulated not the federal occupation, but the red shirt campaign. Once again, white supremacist reform, born in 1876, had vanquished its foes. The chastened whiskey ring, its hirelings, the liquor toughs, and the anti-constable mobs joined blacks, Republicans, carpetbaggers, and gold bugs in the pantheon of white supremacy's enemies. The two sides traded charges of unmanly cowardice in terms that demonstrated how decisively Tillman had won. Why didn't Tillman go to Darlington himself, demanded one opponent who hoped to make Tillman's individual actions the issue. Wade Hampton would have gone, but Tillman, a miserable coward who boasts that he shot down Negroes like dogs, stays in his mansion and puts a heavy guard of Edgefield fanatics around the premises to protect his sacred person. Tillman preferred, as usual, to cast the conflict in terms of collective behavior, and he offered an ingeniously double-edged charge against the mob that had pursued the constables near Darlington, playing on the tension between vigilante action and legitimate authority. These men, he told a Columbia audience, were advertising themselves to the world as lynchers, and they intended to lynch those constables. After defining his opponents as murderous foes of law and order, Tillman shifted position once more, became the authentic voice of violent white supremacy. During the riot, he explained the mob had caught one of the fleeing constables, but had left him unharmed. Tillman, therefore, mocked the mob for lacking the proper spirit, accusing them of being too cowardly to act on their own violent convictions. It seems they didn't want to find the constables, he suggested. If they were lynchers, as they advertised themselves to be, why didn't they lynch the man whom they claimed originated the trouble? and whom they had in their power. They have slandered themselves. These craven white men had challenged Tillman's authority and threatened to murder his agents, but in doing so, they had demonstrated neither a capacity for violence nor a respect for state power. Their threat had proved hollow, an empty hood. With the glee of one who for the moment had extricated himself from an uncomfortable position astride the fence, Tillman used his control of the government to reinforce his claims. In a move calculated to outrage his urban opponents, he
he dismissed a Charleston justice who had ruled against his constables, replacing him with the city's former chief constable. More dramatically, Tillman publicly dismissed the militia units that had refused to obey his orders. He compared the gallant and patriotic soldiers who had obeyed his orders to the band box soldiers and disgraced men who had not. A few weeks later, he disbanded some rebellious units entirely, stripping them of both their military regalia and their martial honor. Tillman appropriated his opponents' issues as well as their weapons. He claimed that he and his supporters had won a victory not only for violent white supremacy and the rule of law, but for the state's economic reputation as well. If our bonds are at a premium and capital not afraid to seek investment in South Carolina, Tillman told the legislature at the end of 1894, it is not because the militia of Charleston, Columbia, and other towns refused to obey the orders of the governor, but because loyal, upcountry militia units dropped everything and hastened to the capital to sustain the government they had chosen. To ensure such loyalty in future conflicts, Tillman set about commissioning new militia companies whose numbers far exceeded those he had disbanded. In Tillman's wedding of constitutionalism and coercion, some saw an emerging despotism. During the tumultuous campaign of 1894, some former allies suggested that Tillman sought to make these new forces into a factional army. Tillman's longtime lieutenant, Samson Pope, who split from the Democrats and made an independent run for governor in the fall of 1894, claimed that Tillman had ordered the bulldozing of independent voters, not only by reform and democratic forces, but by the dispensary, constables, and new militia units as well. Others took a more hopeful view of the Darlington riot. Sally Chapin believed that the dispensary war had demonstrated the ability of the state to protect the homes of South Carolinians. With a man of courage at the head, she wrote to Tillman in the aftermath of the riot, liquor laws could be enforced, if not absolutely at first, fully as well as laws against burglary, murder, or any other crime. She left lynching off her list, perhaps recognizing that it might still be a sore point with the governor she was trying so hard to flatter. As it was, she told Tillman exactly what he wanted to hear about the state's role in home protection. Others wanted him to go further, extending the principle of state power into areas usually policed more locally. One white woman saw the dispensary constable's investigations as a model for more general state policing on behalf of white purity. In an 1894 letter to Tilbin, she suggested that the dispensary officers should have added to their business that of hunting up all the white men and colored women that are associating together in an unlawful and immoral manner. The law between white men and colored women, she insisted, should be just as strict as it is between white women and colored men. But even Tillman was reluctant to make the state responsible for enforcing such prohibitions. 
He cautiously replied that if public opinion can be aroused so as to have it proven, white men and black women involved in adulterous liaisons could be punished under existing laws and that some counties did so. He declined, however, to put his constables to work enforcing racial and sexual purity, perhaps recognizing that he had already taken on more responsibility for enforcement than he could comfortably manage. White supremacist governance had found its limits. Context of white supremacy. Second audio segment, Ben Tillman, Reconstruction of White Supremacy. <clears throat> Second audio segment coming up, Ben Tillman, Reconstruction of White Supremacy. For folks who would like to chime in, the number to dial is 760-569-7676. The code is 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate number again seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six the code is five six four nine four three pound Press star six if you would like to participate. For folks who don't want to call, you can use the um, free flash phone. Uh, should be linked at the Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it's tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address one more time, tiny, T-I-N-Y, dot C-C, forward slash, one, race, and that is the number one. Once you put in that address, you'll see a link on the left side of the page at the bottom. Uh, it says free flash player. When you click the link, it'll open a small window on your screen top line it is a drop down menu uh, select the number that I just gave out which again is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six the code five six four nine four three that's what it's going to ask for on the second line the code that code again, five six four nine four three, and then the final line will ask for a name. You can put in a nickname, real name, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that done, click the green button at the bottom. Should connect you to the live program. You should be able to hear us. Uh, it's the same procedure. If you would like to participate, uh, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do so, you'll hear the audio prompt. Press 1. I'll see your hand. We'll get you on the line. Should be good to go. All righty. Uh, everybody who has a hand up, uh, I will get you. I'm trying to decide because uh, I had a couple things 
to share this week. There was an article in the Edgefield Advertiser, which is the same area in South Carolina. They have a newspaper, and they've been doing a lot of uh, stories about all of this, uh, obviously since, uh, or really even before the shooting uh, in Charleston, they were talking about, because they've been protesting and trying to get uh, the statues uh, and the buildings that are named after Ben Tillman, they've been trying to get those renamed and everything before the Charleston uh, shooting. And then there's certainly been a lot more attention to all of this afterwards. So they've been talking about it all along. There was a new article this week uh, where the a white person, I think, is writing in and, and talking about that. We need to have context in our understanding of Ben Tillman. And uh, I was digging around because I was telling people that, you know, some of these speeches and things where uh, Ben Tillman is taught and other folks of this time period where they're speaking, uh, that a lot of this stuff is in, you know, newspapers or speeches that they gave that were written down. Uh, these folks were holding political office. So a lot of the things that they said were recorded. So a lot of this, you know, you're getting to hear directly what they said. Uh, and the quote about the Negro domination. I think I will go ahead and get that in real quick and I'll save the other one for later and then I'll get the callers. So this is uh, in the newspaper. This is in the Indianapolis Journal uh, from the 8th of May, 1902. Okay. So uh, Ben Tillman is a senator at this time. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he is complaining about the U.S. government's involvement in the Philippines at the time, which is also white supremacy, but he's complaining about that, and he's complaining about uh, white supremacy and, you know, maintaining domination over Negroes in South Carolina. So I'm just going to read uh, a portion of this article, and I can post the article online if folks want to get the whole thing, because it is, it is a hoot, and they actually have the whole uh, paper, uh, so you can see, you know, everything that was reported that day uh, from the 8th of May, 1902. So he says, uh, or the article reads, <clears throat> Tillman referred to the outrages in the Philippines and then said he had heard only of the application of the sand cure in the South. He thought the sand cure, as described, was mild. When he declared, we get ready to put a nigger's face in the sand, we put his body there too. The South would not submit to Negro domination. Mr. Tillman insisted that the Republican contention was that the Negroes of the South were fitted to govern in this country, but that the Filipinos were not fitted to govern themselves in the Philippines. In the United States, he maintained a serious problem, confronted the government, the Negro problem, and we might better try to solve that than to hunt for trouble in the Philippines. Throughout the South, he said, there is a horror hanging over every household for this awful fear of rape. And yet you turn your back on it and march to the East, where you murder and butcher and torture the poor Filipinos. And you are doing all this in the name of Christianity and humanity and liberty. I can see the hypocrisy oozing out all over you. Laughter, he urged that discussion of the Southern race question should cease. You are taunting us, he said, about our treatment of the Negroes in the South, hoping at the same time that we will not interfere with your game of deviltry in the Philippines. We hope you will find us. <clears throat> we hope you will help us 
in the South to get rid of the threat of Negro domination, which hangs over us like the sword of Damocles. Lynchings will continue as long as those fiends rape our wives and daughters. I will stop there. Incredible. <laughs> Former Governor, U.S. Senator Ben Tillman. Um, we will get to the phone lines. Incredible article. Uh, it, it, there's even more. Uh, the folks that dialed in with a hand up, uh, your line should be open. Mr. Demerick Four, uh, Mr. Thomas Smith in New York. Uh, I'll nab other hands as I see them. Yes, Gus, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Is that audible? I mean, loud enough? Oh, yes, sir. We can hear you clear. Oh, okay. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to the other callers and listeners. Well, Bill Tillman, uh, like on page 183, uh, he kind of aligned himself with. Uh, this lady, Sally F. Chapman, uh, she was uh, the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union uh, leader. And so she aligned herself with, with Tillman, and I guess she wanted to get some of her interests uh, acknowledged. You know, he was acceptable at first because she was aligning herself with the idea of terrorizing black people. But when he, she started talking about prohibition and doing away with the liquor, then he started to uh, draw back a little bit on that. He, uh, he said that he wasn't an habitual drinker, but uh, he was speaking up for those farmers that, you know, did. So, now he came up with this idea that uh, statewide dispensary system, where basically he was going to monopolize all of the liquor sales in the state. To me, this sounds like a mobster, and it's exactly the way that they do it, by taking up territories and not... Imagine the effects that it would have closing down all the sale outlets on liquor and then the state purchasing liquor wholesale and then distributing it to local retail outlets that they call dispensary. You know, so now they just cornered the market on all of the liquor sales. And then what's bad about all of this is he turned around and say that he's doing this to actually help the state to cut down on crime. And in essence, it's a, it's a, it's a mob, it's a syndicate operation and he's the head of it. So it was so confusing to the people that some of the prohibitionists on page 184 even turned to Tillman for aid against his own creation, which, you know, is reminiscent of non-white people forced to go for help from a system that was created for our own annihilation. On uh, page 187, 
uh, Kilman uh, started taking on the railroad. You know, it was considered, you know, the way the railroad was transporting the whiskey and the whiskey ring, he saw a means where he could make a large amount of corrupt funds, they call it. But it's just, you know, kickback money that he can use in his next campaign. So he's got this criminal organization going that he's profiting from. And his conflict came when he tried to enforce that dispensary law. Now, you can imagine all these people wanting to drink. And Tillman showing up every angle that you can get liquor or sell it unless it's through the state and then appointing these constables, you know, to enforce it. You know, he just sort of put a bounty on the head of those constables. Uh, in uh, one, on page 188, the Charleston News uh, showed how white seats to prosper from the ignorance from uh, non-whites or blacks being ignorant of the system. That probably uh, went over the heads of people. It said in 1886 that Charleston News and Carrier had warned that common black agricultural laborers were credulous, ignorant, and suspicious, just the material to be used as plastic, as putty in the hands of shrewd and ambitious leaders. So we found we find ourselves falling victim to the system if we're not aware of what's actually going on, how it works, what it is and how it works. And last but not least I'll say that the way oh, let me mention this one thing on page one ninety one when they were enforcing these uh, dispensary laws. And so one of the mayors charged one of the constables with drunkenness. And it says on the top of 191, the mayor of Yorkville even prosecuted an Edgefield dispensary constable for drunkenness, threatening a man with three years in the penitentiary, but ultimately finding him as if he were a Negro charged with the same offense. I guess that was to add insult to injury. But also, and last but not least, on page 197, uh, it was interesting that he ended the chapter, you know, uh, the author ended the chapter saying that enforcing sex between white and non-white as white supremacist governance had found its limits. But we all know that sexual sewage is essential to white supremacy racism. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, bro. Right on, right on. Appreciate that, Mr. Uh, Demry Four. Uh, let's see, Thomas Smith in New York should be with us as well. Uh, if you have any comments, feel free, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Mr. Demery. Uh, very good observations. I wish I had the, the book in front of me so I could point out some things because it was so much. But um, the whole prohibition thing, it sounds a lot like the war on drugs to me, the way everything was sounding. It's like, and, and at some point there, they even talked about, you know, they were going after black people who they were suspecting to be uh, also bootlegging. Um... Um, I just came back from um, the grand state of Cal um, South Carolina, and I had some, um, you know, racial incidents down there. I don't know if it's appropriate to talk about it now at the book time, but um, you know, the book was definitely um, was going, you know, right on, right on point. For a second, it got off of black people and started talking about the prohibition, but they tied that right into black people. Where I said, "Oh, there it goes," and um, that's all I have to say so far. Thank you. Right on, right on. Uh, if other folks uh, would like to chime in, feel free. We have about 30 minutes before we get to the second audio clip, uh, unless, you know, there's not a whole lot to say, then we can get there quicker. But feel free to chime in if anything stood out as being uh, significant. Um, looking at some of my notes here, I thought the, the punishment of the constable uh, finding him uh, as though he were a Negro, I thought that was... Uh, <laughs> What can you say other than yet another illustration that white people cannot be ignorant about racism? How could you do such a thing? Um, so let's see on. Uh, just FYI, when it was talking about the dispute uh, that uh, at the time, Governor uh, Tillman, uh, he and Grover Cleveland, when he was president, they were not on the same page. So he missed out on uh, a lot of the apportionments and what have you that. <clears throat> cronyism basically he could have participated in having uh, his party holding the White House uh, they said he missed out on about $250,000 uh, in these apportionments that would have been doled out uh, that in 1892 dollars that would equate to about six and a half million dollars uh, in today's figures so just to give some idea um, when uh it got to this whole prohibition uh, setup and the railroads, how they facilitated and being able to move uh, contraband. And he, I guess he got some brownie points with local whites for impounding uh, railroad property, even though he had to eventually relent, I guess, and, and release their release their cars or whatever else he had taken. Uh, but even though he had to back down. It was symbolic and, and they felt he was standing up to the money power uh, and, you know, the big corrupt railroad uh, companies and federal intervention. Uh, I thought that was significant because that seems to be a consistent thing, a consistent bit of uh, rhetoric on the part of whites. This idea of uh, this need to show defiance. You're not going to push me around you know i'm i'm a white man i'm not gonna take this i think that is that is a real uh key concept uh in the system of white supremacy you see that in in so many of their different figure breaking bad obviously uh one of the more recent uh incarnations certainly i think a lot of people would point to the current presidential race uh donald trump and what have he might even be present day illustration of ben tillman in many respects uh but that seems to have a lot of Relevance and even tying in directly with racism, white supremacy, particularly for white people, uh, this idea that there is going to be some 
uh, federal intervention to tell them what to do with their niggers. Uh, that seems to be a pretty consistent idea uh, that, again, you hear that playing out even uh, to this day, long running theme. And, and it still seems to have that that value, that luster uh, in the way people talk about the Confederate flag and the way people talk about even some of the things that happened during the 1960s, Strom Thurmond and massive resistance and a lot of the different white people, uh, George Wallace uh, down in Alabama uh, and some of these other folks uh, getting a reputation and folks being proud uh, of these people's legacy and what they did. Um, also thought <clears throat> when he was, this is Ben Tillman, when he was talking about the strike in New York and where Pinkerton uh, broke the strike, and it was talking about how Ben Tillman, he sympathized with the strikers, and he said that Pinkerton's men, uh, he'd like to see every one of Pinkerton's men men hanged. Uh, and I thought, again, and there were quite a few illustrations this week, and I mean, it's been a ton of them as we've been reading. Uh, again, if there is difference, <clears throat> it's going to be conceived of because the concept of white supremacy is primary, it's most dominant, it is the supreme idea, motivating force in the known universe uh, that that ends up being the way that they think about everything. So if I don't agree with you, that ends up being viewed in a white supremacist manner where even if you're a white person, I end up thinking of you or talking about you or wanting to treat you as I would a black person. Anyone that I'm in opposition with they get recast as a nigger. Uh, and we've seen that throughout the book. I think I, the example I pointed to, I think when he went to South Carolina, University of South Carolina, and they were cheering him and booing him, Ben Tillman, and they said they were going to hang him from their sour apple tree. We're going to lynch you like a nigger. It's just, it's rife throughout the book, and it's just been tons and tons of those illustrations. And I, I see that not just in, uh, in this text, but elsewhere as well. Uh, I also thought it was fascinating, <clears throat> this incident. I guess even before I get to that, I don't know if they have uh, alcoholic beverage control. Uh, I know they don't have it in every state, right? And I don't know, you know, where all the people that are listening to the program are from, but I know um, at least, you know, unless it's changed uh, more recently, they had alcoholic beverage control in Virginia, which pretty much sounds like these dispensaries. Like you have to go to uh, a state licensed, state operated uh, retailer to purchase alcohol you, uh, or at least uh, things like uh, liquor and, and things like that. Like you can get uh, beer and wine at the grocery store and other outlets. But in terms of uh, alcohol, you have to go to, it's pretty much a, dis a dispensary. <laughs> I mean, I'm, uh, I'm trying to see what the difference is, but I can't, I've been thinking about that. I read this obviously before. Um, I can't think of a difference. That is not the case in every state. Um, it even used to be that way in Washington state until very recently. I mean, like, uh, within the last, I think, two or three years. I just don't remember exactly when they changed it. But, I mean, it was real recent that they had that here as well. But now it's it's like it is in a lot of the uh, other West Coast states in particular where you could just go to, like, the grocery store or wherever else and purchase alcohol. But uh, I don't know, unless I'm mistaken, if somebody out there can set me straight as to what the difference is between these dispensaries and the current uh, alcoholic beverage control setups that they have and a lot of particularly like in the South and places uh, that would be grand because it, it seems very similar to me. I guess they don't have the constables and what have you. <laughs> they don't have uh, the uh, apportionment that doesn't seem to be a part of it, but that's just one to think on. Anyway, uh, the anecdote where they were talking about these black people that attacked 
the constable, again, illustration of black people not being chumps and cowards and lames and just taking whatever white folks dish out. Uh, but I thought it was fascinating that you get this idea again that even then we are going to articulate this as these are just niggers. They're not capable of anything independent. Uh, this must be some white people behind the scenes that are using them and, and some reckless no count whites that are, you know, so depraved and they're thinking that they would use niggers to attack our dispensary system. Uh, I thought that was fascinating as well. And, and he talked about that this this issue uh, was enough that it kind of bumped things mildly off of the normal racial way that they would have, have been discussing an incident like this. Um, and I think there have been a few examples of that in the book. Uh, as well. I'm just again struck, I think Mr. Demery foreheaded right on the head in terms of this being set up as a, a mob operation, a, a criminal uh, syndicate. And in fact, that's the way that they describe the dispensary system. If you see monuments, I was looking this week for um, just different photographs in South Carolina, some of the monuments and statues that they have uh, to Ben Tillman. But as I was looking for that, they have a plaque, and I, I'll post it on uh, the Facebook uh, pages. Uh, once I get a second, but they have a plaque at one of the sites in South Carolina that used to be a dispensary and they explain, you know, what that is and on. And this is one of those, if you've seen the, uh, like national markers, this is like an official thing. And on the plaque, it says that, uh, these dispensaries were so rife with corruption and vice and, and all that, that they were eventually shut down. And I think it was like 1914 or whatever the, whatever the year was, but this is on the plaque. <laughs> just like, this is just mobocracy and, and gangsterism basically. Um, but yeah, I think he hit it right on the head. And again, I am just left. I have no idea if it's not white supremacy, if that's not what Ben Tillman is celebrated for, and recognized for and why all this stuff is named after him that they won't take down if it's not white supremacy i have no idea what there is to celebrate i mean unless you're just down with you know cronyism and mobster if that's what you worship then oh okay if you're saying that's what it is and fraudulence because they i mean they just keep saying that over and over and over again stealing elections disenfranchisement keeping people from being able to vote particularly black people but even some white people keeping them from being able to vote driving down participation in elections if that's the type of thing that you celebrate okay but to me it just makes no sense at all unless he's being recognized and applauded for his dedication devotion to the religion of white supremacy unless that's what it is I do not understand because I just don't see anything here that is worthy of recognition and praise. Maybe I'm wrong. Did anybody else uh, have any other any other thoughts? Uh, I don't see any other hands at this point. Mr. Demery, Thomas in New York, y'all have anything else that stood out? Yes, I uh, can hear both of you. Okay, I'll just have one quick thing. Uh, the part where <clears throat> I guess they wasn't getting enough blacks illegally buying liquor, so they actually went so far as to paint white men's faces to go and purchase liquor, you know, so that, or to gain information, you know, where the illegal liquor was being sold. You know, it's just that, okay, we'll implement this dispensary, but we still want to come up with a way where we can 
get these niggers. We have to be able to get them some type of way. I mute my line. Oh, uh, I think Mr. Uh, Smith in New York got disconnected, but he might have rung back in. Uh, if you uh, okay, you should uh, you should be there too. Oh, are you uh, with us, Thomas in New York? Line should be open. Hello. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I was just gonna piggyback off uh, what you were saying. Um. Yeah, I remember being um, in the state of Virginia before, yeah, and they had the state store. And um, it's always strange to me because, you know, I was a kid, and my family would always be excited to go to the state store when we got to Virginia because they say the liquor's so cheap there. But in New Jersey, the law is different, um, and it's all state regulated. I mean, to this day, I think that you need a liquor license and everything to sell liquor. Um but in New Jersey, um, the liquor stores probably stay open until 10 o'clock. Um, and they can't open on Sundays. And um, um, New York, we always, you know, it was a shock to me because, you know, they sold, they sold beer in the store. You know, you only could buy beer in New Jersey from the liquor store. So it was always a shock. You know, oh, man, they sell it in the, you know, the, the grocery stores and in the corner stores in New York. And here they, they seem to be a lot more lean. But... I do see um, people regulating um, the stores because some stores here can sell beer and some of them can't. And um, I've seen them shut a store down a couple of times for selling beer and stuff when they weren't they didn't have a license or wasn't paying whatever fees they have to to do that. So, I mean, he probably just set out the whole state regulation of all, you know, he set the president for all states to follow. You know, um, essentially they all do it differently. But at the end of the day, the state is making a killing off of alcohol sales everywhere. And, um, you know, that, that was all I had to say. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, I emailed Mr. Kantrowitz today as well. Uh, I'm going to ask him about that. Uh, I don't know if he, if, like, this was the first setup, uh, what have you, because obviously this was, you know, decades before uh, Prohibition. But, um yeah, I would be interested to know, like, you know, how, how many other examples preceded this? Uh, was he kind of an early pioneer in this? Uh, and, and, you know, is this somewhat similar to some of the alcoholic beverage control systems that they have set up today? I would definitely be curious uh, about that. Cause that is, I mean, that's a cash flow. I can understand as they said on the plaque on oh, nothing but corruption and uh, mobsterism uh, with all this. I have to get that plaque. Cause that's, you know, like I said, that's a, like one of those national markers. Uh, I also thought it was significant. This is on one ninety one, uh, where they were talking about how these dispensaries, I'll just read it. Uh, Tillman's own schedule of rewards for liquor law violation convictions reflected this white supremacist hierarchy of legal responsibility and criminal importance. Convictions of whites brought a bounty of $20 or $25. Convictions of blacks only $10. As usual, behind black criminality lay scheming white men. Uh, see, we have it again. Um, but I just I thought that was significant because it, it reminded me, I think, uh, folks that were with us when we read Long Walk to Freedom, uh, Madiba, there was a similar scale difference for white people who were arrested for any sort of activities that were allegedly against apartheid and black people 
or non-white people that were arrested for supposed anti-apartheid activities. The white people had stiffer fines, and we were talking about the significance of that, and I think it's the same kind of thing um, that, as it said, uh, <clears throat> a hierarchy of legal responsibility and cr uh, criminal importance. I think, number one, that you're a white person, you should know better, you're supposed to be doing better, again, you can't be ignorant about racism, and I think specifically in terms of who they were trying to target uh, with all of this. I think that's also uh, reflected in, in these... Uh, the fine schedule uh, or rewards rather uh, let's see yeah I thought the, the passage that Mr. Demery Ford mentioned as well where they were dressing uh, blackening up uh, to try to fool some black people I mean some of this is just eh. um, I have been trying to keep up with the footnotes as well because sometimes they have some pretty interesting uh, tidbits uh, just little extra information from some of the sources that didn't get into the actual uh, body of the text uh, when he's talking about these dispensaries I looked back let me make sure I get the correct yes here we go uh, so this is uh, just talking about the dispensary dispute uh, this is footnote number 71 Thomas Dixon Jr. a popular New York preacher <laughs> let me say that one more time a popular New York preacher soon became a literary celebrity as the author of white supremacist novels about postbellum South pointed out that since dispensary would undoubtedly supplant the saloon, the liquor men not only of the state but of New York as well are arrayed in deadly opposition to a fearless, just, and honest governor. <laughs> this is uh, Thomas, uh, Thomas Dixon Jr. Uh, the popular and he was talking about uh ben tillman but the interesting thing thomas dixon is the author of the klansman which is the book that ultimately became the movie uh birth of a nation um that is interesting that because this is in the edgefield paper where thomas dixon is quoted as as saying all this um that is interesting Think knowing that now, because I've, I've talked about Birth of a Nation before, we've talked about it repeatedly, I've written about it. Um, that film had its 100-year anniversary this year. Um, it would be interesting now, because the times before, when I've seen it, read about it, studied it, I didn't know who Ben Tillman was. Now that I know who he is, and I know that, you know, apparently there was a relationship between the author, uh, Mr. Dixon, and Governor Tillman, uh, or at least he admired him, is his character... Where is his character in the book? Because I would think that might be something that he would reflect if he had this kind of respect or acknowledgement uh, for Governor Tillman. That's just a tidbit for folks who might be curious. Uh, any Anything else folks want to make sure they get in before we get to the second audio segment? Last few uh, minutes or so. are satisfied we will get ready to move forward I'm just making sure I didn't uh, move over anything that was important want to make sure it got highlighted uh, there's going to be more on uh, voting uh, coming down the road um, definitely pay attention to that uh, during the next chapter and, and just kind of keep that in mind as I said in terms of uh, this guy being celebrated lauded to this day what reason is it if it's not 
support of the system religion of white supremacy um yeah looking back i think we might be good and plus we stopped at the end of a chapter so that's even great we'll be picking right up at the beginning uh yeah and they're going to emphasize the fraud more too that's coming up that's coming up uh in the second audio segment uh we will go ahead and get started that way we'll have time this segment is a little a slight bit longer than uh most of our normal second audio segment so it'll be good we can get started get that out of the way and then if folks uh have other comments that they did not get to share make a note jot it down so you don't forget uh and we should have uh, quite a bit more to discuss uh chapter six every white man who is worthy of a vote, which is interesting because they've even has been a lot of talk this week about so-called uh, voter ID laws that have been in place uh, down in Texas, I think, where they were saying that some of those laws <clears throat> may have violated uh, the constitutional rights uh, of some people and uh, that these laws are disproportionately impacting black people, non-white in total, but in particular black people. And this is to address the problem that uh, I think I've seen consistently, a problem that does not seem to exist at any rate. Uh, we will get started. Chapter six, Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. It is on page for me, 198 context of white supremacy. Chapter six. Every white man who is worthy of a vote. Tillman sought to transform white supremacy into something more than a slogan. He envisioned a structure of state laws and institutions that would nurture and sustain white farming households. But the legacy of Reconstruction thwarted his efforts, raising the possibility not only of a resurgent black political participation, but of biracial coalitions as well. As long as substantial numbers of black men remained potentially eligible to vote, divisions among white men would continue to imperil Tillman's visions. As in 1880, 1882, 1890, and 1892, dissident white men might appeal to black voters. If they won, they would overturn all the progress made since 1876. Tillman, therefore, called for a new state constitution, one carefully crafted to exclude most black men and safeguard Anglo-Saxon supremacy, good government, and our civilization. He and others took their inspiration from the success of white Mississippi Democrats who in 1890 had disenfranchised most of the state's black voting majority without prompting a federal response. In the midst of the Haskellite challenge, the Charleston News and Courier had looked forward to a time when white supremacy is not in danger. A time when, like the people of Mississippi, we can devise some modus vivendi between the two races, which will be just to both while securing control to the whites. Following Mississippi's lead, South Carolina's would-be disenfranchisers offered poll taxes and literacy or understanding tests as effective barriers to black suffrage. The campaign in support of a constitutional convention and the debates within the convention itself revealed just how badly the state's white men were divided and how fragile the political economic basis for white supremacy had become. The 15th Amendment made it difficult to disenfranchise blacks 
without also threatening the suffrage of some whites. But Tillman insisted that he had a plan, although economic and educational proxies for race would eliminate many black voters. An understanding clause would allow even illiterate white men to vote. This plan, Tillman said, would save the suffrage of every white man who is worthy of a vote, while at the same time reducing the Negro voters at least half, possibly more. Tillman's use of the qualifier worthy to describe the white men whose votes would be preserved raised warning flags for many listeners. In the ideal world he envisioned there would have been no overlap between black and white men along axes of wealth or education. But even after two decades of redemption and five years of reform rule, race did not fully define men's social and economic status in South Carolina and everyone knew it. Many white men hovered at the same margins of literacy and economic self-sufficiency as their black neighbors, and no one doubted that there were thousands of educated, property-owning black men whose right to vote might, in principle, be unaffected. Some understood Tillman's use of the word worthy as the logical culmination of his effort to define white manhood as a matter of political behavior as much as a matter of color or sex. The debates that followed explored the limits of white supremacy as a coherent program. However carefully Tillman sailed the white supremacist ship of state, suffrage restrictions proved to be dangerous cargo indeed. The unwieldy vessel groaned under the weight ominously scraping the barely submerged shoals of protest from dissenting men and women, black and white. As opponents mobilized against the Constitutional Convention, the campaign of 1894 came closer to splitting the white electorate in two than had any previous conflict. White men who feared a Tillman-dominated convention combined with black voters. Together, they gave an insurgent challenger for the governorship, a dissident Tillmanite, the largest vote of any non-Democrat since 1876, and they very nearly prevented the convention from taking place. The statewide referendum, calling the convention passed, but only by a tiny and almost certainly fraudulent margin. When the convention finally met, members of this defeated opposition challenged Tillman's claim to be the champion of ordinary white men. Tillman's growing national ambitions also shaped the new constitution. The hostile Columbia State noted in late 1895 that Tillman was beginning to pose for the national eye. Indeed, Tillman not only sought to replace Matthew Butler in the U.S. Senate, but he also hoped to forge a new national coalition of white, southern, and western producers. He feared that if white South Carolinians did not appear to abide by national rules of electoral conduct, it would be difficult for them to retain the sympathy of any class outside the state. The Republicans would then take control of the federal government, pass new election laws akin to the hated Lodge Bill, and come here and wrest this government from you and you will be as helpless as babes. 
white supremacist Democrats must take control of the state government, but they must do so carefully. Tillman explained, we are being watched from one end of this country to another. We are already twitted with proposing to perpetuate trickery and fraud and to strike down free American voters with our machinations and machinery. We have openly avowed one purpose to do certain things, but we cannot openly avow this purpose. You invite attacks from Congress, from the Supreme Court of the United States, and from all the enemies of South Carolina and all the enemies of the South and all the friends of the Negroes. The convention itself bore out some of Tillman's anxieties. His fear of external scrutiny along with divisions among white men inevitably created openings through which members of the subordinated majority pressed their own claims to citizenship. Before and during the convention, black South Carolinians, white women, and white male dissidents used the debate over worthiness to demand a place in the polity. Failing that effort, they used the proceedings to expose the irresolvable contradictions within the racial, martial, and political meanings of white supremacy. By the time the convention concluded its work, not only Tillman, but also a host of his opponents had raised questions about race, gender, and citizenship that would continue to haunt the state, region, and nation. The defeat of Tillman's opponents demonstrated the weakness of their political position, but the debates they provoked revealed that Tillman's project had reached its own limits. Fraud and the Boundaries of Democracy Tillman's notion that men had to be worthy of a vote had wide currency in the late 19th century. In the words of the leading scholar of suffrage restrictions, concern about the proper extent of the electorate was so widespread in the late 19th century that virtually all articulate Southerners and many Northerners felt they had to relate their own political positions to a theory of the franchise. The Charleston News and Courier spoke for many conservative white men when it disparaged the post-bellum era's experiments in the science of universal suffrage and argued that to the extension of the suffrage is due more than to any other one cause the dangers which now threaten the existence of our present form of government. Most white men would doubtless have agreed with the paper's assertion that black men's racial peculiarities must continue always to exclude them from recognition as Americans in any other than a forced, artificial, and narrow sense of the term, and from the enjoyment of the most valuable rights and privileges enjoyed by all other Americans. Tillman portrayed black voting as the essential barrier between South Carolina and good government, and Wade Hampton agreed that black majority rule would bring total and absolute ruin to the South and infinite and irreparable loss to the whole country. Debates generally concerned 
not whether the suffrage ought to be restricted, but how far and according to what principles Republicans like Albion Touje and Robert Smalls, who supported universal male suffrage, belonged to a shrinking minority. To Tillman, the notion that all men were created equal had no legitimate place in discussions of the suffrage. If you are going to bring the universal brotherhood of man as an argument here, he expostulated, then are not the blacks as much entitled to that consideration as anybody? As far as perfect equality was concerned, Tillman concluded, the millennium has not yet come, and I am afraid it will not come in this day and generation, if ever. He knew better than to argue directly against the universal equality of white men, but he clearly believed that whiteness and maleness were not in themselves sufficient. Other wealthy white men agreed. One Charleston aristocrat confided to another that he believed universal suffrage must prove a failure with an ordinary population of whites, and that there are some Negroes better fitted for the exercise of the rights of citizenship than are many whites who actually vote. Such men were not speaking entirely theoretically, for black men continued to play a variety of parts in the state's electoral politics. Interracial fusion arrangements flourished in the state's low country. A few black men represented themselves as partisan allies of white Democrats, and some leading Democrats cultivated black informants who kept them posted regarding inter-party Republican rivalries. Even Tillman received declarations of support from a few black voters, but the tide of white sentiment within the party leadership ran against such cooperation. Even in Democratic primaries, where only a few stalwart black Hamptonites were technically entitled to vote, white Democrats threw out black men's ballots. Meanwhile, most black men continued to identify themselves as Republicans and black power persisted in the low country. Black majorities of three to one or more had fostered a vibrant, although often fractious Republican party with as many as three factions of black and white leaders wrestling over offices. Some tried to keep the peace through fusion arrangements with local Democrats, whereas others rejected these alliances as unwarranted capitulations to the small democratic minority. Beaufort and Georgetown counties both practiced fusion politics during the 1880s and 1890s, even in the counties where redshirt violence had done its worst. At least a few brave souls turned out for local and federal elections. Tillman and other Democrats continued to view the black electorate as a frozen serpent, temporarily rendered impotent, but capable of being warmed into life to sting us whenever some more white rascals, native or foreign, come here and mobilize the ignorant blacks. But efforts formally to exclude black men from the national polity came to naught. In Washington, D.C., Butler championed proposals to repeal the 15th Amendment and deport black Americans to another country. 
Such efforts, however, faced apparent intractable political, demographic and economic obstacles. So even as the Charleston News and Courier denied that blacks could ever be Americans, it felt obliged to promise that African-Americans would ever be accorded the fullest enjoyment of their political rights as citizens. A political culture of deception and double talk was reaching full flower. Democrats quietly acknowledged that the work of disenfranchisement had begun with the registration and eight box laws of the early 1880s. Although formally neutral, these laws were administered in a discriminatory way. Tillman himself instructed a prospective registration official that one of the chief requirements of a good supervisor of registration is not to be particular about the law. But nervous white Democrats knew that these laws had not truly solved the problem of black political participation. Registration lists, for example, made no mention of the voters race in order to protect officials from potential legal vulnerability. Ironically, this measure left Democrats ignorant of the actual extent of black Republican registration. Despite the policy's apparent success at reducing black participation, Therefore, Democratic officials remained fearful and dissatisfied. I am only surprised one Democrat wrote the governor in 1886 at the supineness of the Republican Party in not preparing for future ascendancy through this very law. For their part, Republicans complained that these laws and practices made a mockery of democracy. During the 1880s, Democratic governors refused to appoint Republicans to election boards. The resulting system, Republican Party Chairman Ellery M. Brayton declared in 1888, did more than political evil. It fostered a false code of morals. The despoiler of the ballot box does not hide his crime, Brayton complained, for it constitutes a claim to preferment. Smalls, addressing a national audience from the pages of the North American Review, offered South Carolina's discriminatory laws and fraudulent administration of elections as arguments for passage of the Lodge Bill. A growing chorus of white Democrats also seemed uncomfortable with the persistence of fraud as a normal part of politics. A supervisor of registration complained that local politicians brought him lists of names to be registered in absentia. He was willing to bend the law, but not break it like this. But he feared the governor would remove him from office if he refused. A Democratic legislator acknowledged that the presence of a black majority forced Democrats to turn to wrong and pernicious means in order to achieve crucial ends. An era of violence, ballot box stuffing, and fraud, while it accomplished the purpose it was intended for, must ever be an era we must deplore. Some white Democrats believe the solution lay in fusion. In Georgetown and Beaufort, where black and white Republicans and Democrats divided offices, some came to see fusion as a practical, sustainable alternative to the fraud and force of the red shirt legacy. Beaufort Democrats referred openly to their coalition partners as our Republican allies. An arch conservative spokesman such as Narciso Gonzalez applauded fusion as an alternative to the distasteful shotgun policy. 
with the 10 years success of the Georgetown plan before us, Gonzalez's Columbia State declared we cannot admit that the Edgefield plan was the only way out of the wilderness. The state condemned electoral fraud under any circumstances and explained that Tillmanites sought to palliate by associating them with the great victory the frauds they have for mere lust of office been perpetrating upon white men in recent years and which they are planning for the future. Those who cavalierly defrauded or even shot black men argued fusionists had no real respect for democracy among white men. Tillman, whose goal was to reduce and paralyze the remnant of the black cohorts of Reconstruction, responded to fusion with hostility and impatience. As the 1892 election approached, he declared that he would prefer local defeats to the trap, foolishness, and bad politics of such arrangements. Nonetheless, leading Georgetown Democrat Walter Hazard sought Tillman's authorization for the usual compromise ticket, which would give Democrats the majority of the offices, but require a bipartisan and biracial division of commissioners of election. As Tillman resisted, another low country Democrat confirmed that Democrats can't be elected to office without keeping good faith with the compromise made with the Republicans. Tillman grew tired and disgusted with this muddle, but he finally appointed black commissioners in order to pacify them and prevent any independent ticket. Some opponents even charged that Tillman had made his own deal with Republican George W. Murray in order to defeat conservative Democrat William Elliott in the black district. But debates over fusion did not address the broader crisis in the state's electoral life. If the health of a democracy can be judged by its citizens' rates of participation, neither redeemers nor reformers had done the state much good, for low country turnout had marked South Carolina elections since the 1880s. In 1890, a Kansas newspaper noted critically that 79,000 South Carolina voters elected the same number of congressmen as 334,000 Kansans. By 1894, that charge was echoed by congressmen who placed South Carolina's total population of more than one million in awkward contrast with its turnout, which had shrunk to just 70,000. This was not simply a result of the obstacles facing Republicans, for low Democratic turnout began to trouble some local observers as well. In 1892, the Charleston News and Courier noted that Tillman's total vote in his 1890 victory had amounted to only one-third of the potential white electorate. One source of Democratic apathy was the party's own procedures. South Carolina's nomination and election process had become elaborate, multi-stage contests favoring early organization over mass participation. Although Tillman had long claimed to champion popular rule, the machinations of convention nominations continued to serve him well. Facing a strong conservative challenge during his first term and in violation of the principles his faction had proposed in 1890, Tillman blocked efforts to call a direct primary in 1892. The call for a primary had been designed to break up ring rule. The governor explained to white alliancemen in 1892 
and it was never intended to take any advantage of the brave Democrats of the Negro counties. A direct primary, he said, would destroy the political equilibrium of the state, an equilibrium that, not incidentally, favored the incumbent governor. Tillman had learned that control over a convention's leadership and agenda could guarantee victory. As he acknowledged years later in conventions, the moving force which dictates the platform and announces the temporary chairmanship sets the machinery in motion. Having been that moving force on many occasions, Tillman knew how often South Carolina's white Democrats' choices had been shaped by organizational forces. The machinery could overwhelm all but the most committed partisans. South Carolina's tradition of Democratic Party discipline made the earliest contest the most important for voters who participated in any factional or party contest were expected and often required to support the winner at the next stage. As a result, those who attended small local meetings that took place months before the general election could, in effect, choose the Democratic nominee and thus the victor in November. The 1894 election, for example, included several primaries, but hardly any broad-based democracy. In early August of that year, the leadership of Tillman's reform organization called for a reform primary to select delegates to a 16th of August factional convention. Responding to this call, reform clubs in many counties met on the 11th of August and selected delegates to county reform conventions. Two days later, while these county assemblies selected delegates to the state reform convention, other counties elected delegates directly in reform primaries, club meetings run by local Tillmanite leaders. The delegates thus selected assembled on the 16th of August in Columbia, where they continued the tradition of 1890 and suggested John Gary Evans as the Democratic candidate for governor. In theory, their suggested candidate would be one of many to go before the people in the Democratic primary. Even the Democratic Party's so-called primary, though, was not a direct election. Rather, party members, many of them Tillmanites who had already voted for Evans, gathered to elect delegates to a statewide Democratic nominating convention, which also selected the party's nominees for county offices, the state legislature, and the U.S. House. In theory, Evans still had to run for the Democratic nomination in a statewide party primary on the 28th of August, but he entered that contest with the enormous head start of a reform endorsement. Reform voters who had taken part in the factional contest were expected to rally around Evans in the Democratic primary and convention, and thus the odds were strongly in his favor long before Democrats voted in their primary. The state's newspapers, even those not allied with Tillman, appeared to understand that a reform suggestion was equivalent to the Democratic nomination, almost as surely as that nomination would mean election in November. The day after the reform convention, the Charleston News and Courier ran a laudatory biography of Evans apparently conceding the state election to a man who at that point had only been suggested by a party faction. Tillman's 
faction had perhaps done its work too well, and skeptical conservatives saw Tillman's reform movement becoming a political machine. Just four years before, Tillman had complained that party leaders made Democrats delegate our power to delegates who delegate somebody else so that by the time they reach Columbia, they are nothing but office-seeking politicians. Now the shoe was on the other foot. Too much power and insatiable ambition coupled together will ruin any government concluded one observer who derided the 1894 primary as a farcical election without moral binding force. Turnout in the delegate selection election for the state Democratic convention totaled just 58,000, a sharp decline from the 88,000 people who cast votes in the 1892 party contest. The Charleston News and Courier asked, what has become of one third of Carolina's democracy? For his part, Tillman rejected the notion that a light vote in the primary invalidated its result, and he attempted to change the focus of the debate to the preservation of racial hierarchy. He accused his detractors of trying to set the stage for an appeal to black voters. If the primary had no binding force, did this mean that Democratic voters were free to reject the nominee they had helped choose? He doggedly interpreted procedural objections as preludes to racial and party treason. Retreating to the safety of unassailable slogans, he declared that my democracy means white supremacy. But to more than a few Democrats, Tillman's democracy also smacked of dictation. Even as the reform primary process unfolded, Leading reformer and allianceman J. William Stokes warned Evans that he feared a rebellion within party ranks unless voters were given another chance to choose among potential candidates. He suggested releasing reformers from their pledges and calling a primary election open to Democrats of all factions. Evans also received troubling news from Greenville, where a reform organizer reported that a large element of the reformers were dissatisfied with the reform convention. He reported that the state alliance secretary had, in a worrying turn of phrase, denounced him as an exponent of Gary Evans' methods. The democratic selection process did not directly affect the most significant choice facing voters in November, whether or not to call Tillman's proposed constitutional convention. Evans, like Tillman, supported the convention, but it was impossible to say with certainty how most white men would vote. Black voters, of course, were bitterly opposed to you on account of the Constitutional Convention. One correspondent warned Evans, raising for the third time in as many elections the possibility of an alliance of interest between disgruntled black and white men. Democratic unity strained badly along a multitude of personal and factional lines did indeed fracture that summer. Tillmanite Samson Pope, shrugging off the burdensome layers of factional party and state contest, withdrew his pledge to abide by the reform primary. At first, Pope declared his intention to enter the Democratic primary, whether he was suggested or not. 
After losing the reform primary, however, he left the Democratic Party altogether and ran for governor as an independent. The low turnout in the early contests suggested widespread disaffection. Just as important, those who had not voted in earlier contests could not be accused of violating a pledge or bolting the party if they now supported one white Democrat over another. Pope therefore asked the 40,000 reformers who had neglected to participate in the reform primary to abstain as well from the 28th of August Democratic primary, which would leave them free to vote for Pope in his separate bid for the governorship. Pope's platform was a medley of familiar dissident tunes. In addition to opposing the Constitutional Convention as contrary to the interests of poor white men, he called for lower state salaries and a two-year suspension of foreclosures and collections. Garyite and Greenback refrains that Tillman had appropriated a decade before. But the key to Pope's appeal was his opposition to the convention, and he found an audience among voters reluctant to place their suffrage in Tillman's hands. In a warning to poor whites, one writer argued that a convention would disenfranchise poor white men by establishing a high poll tax and an educational qualification. The state's few remaining would-be populists could not prevent many reformers and alliance men from endorsing pro-convention Democrats, but they drew support from those who still advocated more radical economic proposals and those who feared disenfranchisement. Pope even gained the backing of the Columbia State which attacked the convention on a variety of grounds, including its potential for disenfranchising many white voters. But such support for Pope raised new suspicions. The cotton plant, initially skeptical of the convention, moved gradually toward it during the summer of 1894. By the time Pope received the state's endorsement, the Alliance paper declared the fear of white disfranchisement to be a political dodge on the part of those who had always fought against the needs and rights of poor white men. Tillman won this fight, but only barely. In the gubernatorial election, Evans defeated Pope by the slimmest margin of any Democrat since Reconstruction, with Pope gaining about 30% of the vote. But even Democrats who would not support a bolter, voted against the convention. Barely a quarter of the potential electorate turned out. 38% of white men and 17% of black men by one estimation. In total, only 60,000 votes were recorded in the referendum fight and fewer than 57,000 in the gubernatorial race. In the official count, the convention achieved a majority of less than 2,000 votes statewide and it seems certain that Democrats engineered its passage through fraud. Tillman had gone too far, some said, stealing an election from other white men in the name of white supremacy. Conservatives offered evidence of widespread fraud in the counting of independent and anti-convention ballots and pro-convention ballot stuffing in the low country. The Greenville News wrote bitterly that it is time to serve and enforce notice that white men are not going to allow their votes to be thrown out because they do not suit managers of election and that the people of this state intend to defend their rights. The Columbia State 
doubted that the white men of South Carolina will submit to be stripped of their suffrages under the false plea that white supremacy demands it. The men making specific charges of fraud often lacked credibility for they were known to be enemies of Tillman and the reform faction. The conservative Democratic minority continued to wage its battle against the election with Butler carrying Pope's petition of protest to the U.S. Senate early in 1895, but Tillman's forces were moving to consolidate their narrow victory. In its post-election session, the state legislature passed a law calling for a new registration of voters before the selection of convention delegates. Butler and others challenged the constitutionality of this law as well and Pope persuaded a U.S. judge to suspend the law and enjoin Governor Evans from holding the delegate selection election for the convention. Republicans who understood the stakes seized this moment of crisis to offer aid to white opponents of the convention. Black Congressman George Murray threatened a court fight against the 1894 registration law, declaring that it was no easy job to take the Negroes' rights away from him if they acted as men. Fighting lawfully, not unlawfully, we shall create such conditions that the United States is bound to take a hand. Hardened by the support given to qualified black voting by the Columbia State and other papers and by Pope and Butler's efforts against the new registration law, Murray claimed that white men know that the power used to disenfranchise us now will be used hereafter to disenfranchise them and would not be fooled by Tillman's promises. Tillman's consolidation of the 1894 victory continued apace. Legal challenges to the election and the registration law were ultimately overturned at the circuit level and the state legislature voted to retire Butler and send Tillman to the U.S. Senate in his place. Preparations began for the Constitutional Convention, which Tillman looked forward to as a fitting capstone to the triumphal arc which common people have erected to liberty, progress, and Anglo-Saxon civilization since 1890. But this reconstruction of white supremacy was too important a matter to be placed directly in the apparently unreliable hands of white voters. Many reformers wanted a division of delegates among the Democratic factions before the actual election of delegates, thus avoiding a second bitter electoral battle so soon after the 1894 contest. Tillman told a Columbia State reporter that he would not be troubled by a substantial conservative presence at the convention as long as conservatives subscribe to common principles of white supremacy. These principles included qualified suffrage, no disenfranchisement of white men, and, most telling, no submission of the new constitution to the voters. Tillman explained, the fight which we are seeking to avoid would be precipitated in such an event. In early 1895, a statewide conference of Democrats resolved to divide county delegations proportionately among the two factions and to secure the supremacy of Anglo-Saxon civilization by fair and constitutional methods. Conservatives ultimately got almost a third of the convention's seats. Some black Republicans believed that support 
powerful white conservative delegates offered the only possibility of retaining their voting rights. The Negro must either fight or lamely submit, declared the New South in early 1895 as the delegate selection elections approached. To fight in this case meant to vote for white proxies. There are thousands of the best white people in South Carolina today who would much prefer Negro rule to the rule of the present tyrannical oligarchy, the Beaufort paper explained. Those are the men who should be elected delegates. The paper denounced the conspiracy against the purity of the ballot box and warned that there are many more Negroes in South Carolina who are able to read and write and who are freeholders than the casual observer seems to imagine. As they had done in other moments of crisis, black ministers assembled in Columbia to organize against disenfranchisement, urging black men to vote for candidates who promised right and justice to all men. This limited meaning of the word fight reflected how restricted black Republicans' room for maneuver had become. Yet a merger of anti-Tillman forces seemed plausible to at least one white Democrat. During the 1895 delegate selection campaign, legislature and longtime Tillman foe John J. Dargan traveled throughout the state calling for the free exercise of black men's suffrage rights. In 1876, such white mavericks had been shot. In 1882, they had been beaten. By 1895, though, the suppression of such dissidents had become a well-ordered process. When Dargan appeared in Edgefield at the end of June, prominent Democrats, including the county sheriff and treasurer, informed him that although he might have the right to speak on universal suffrage, no one would be allowed to hear him. The Edgefield advertiser declared that Chamberlain was silenced here in 76 and asked whether Dargan should be entitled to higher consideration in 95. A Democratic crowd of 50 or more men Howell Dragon Down and a committee of safety escorted him to the train station. The perpetrators justified their horseplay and rough tongue lashing by claiming that Dargan's right to free speech did not extend to calling for black political participation since this would inevitably create friction between black and white. While this latter day vigilance committee carried out its duties Tillman remained a few miles away at his new plantation in Edgefield's Trenton neighborhood. He had moved to this new property and its attractive frame house shortly after his election to the Senate. And as Dargan was being escorted from town, he sat on his porch and gave an impromptu interview to a black visitor, Reverend Richard Carroll. Since 1890, Carroll had sought to become Tillman's intermediary to black South Carolinians. He imagined Tillman as another Hampton who might offer black South Carolinians protection and limited political rights within the Democratic Party. Tillman gave Carroll little encouragement. He spurned his invitation to address a conference of black leaders, including Booker T. Washington, although Carroll promised to manage the meeting. Tillman also refused Carroll's subsequent invitation to speak at the 1908 colored state fair or even to send a letter that could be read to the audience. 
Carol's persistence in the face of Tillman's refusal to cooperate was remarkable, but by the week before the fair, his frustration had begun to show. You should meet the colored people of your state once in your life, he pleaded vainly with his senator. Tillman had given Carol a concise summary of his views on black citizenship on that day in 1895. As Carol stood at the foot of the steps to the Trenton Plantation House, the new senator looked down at him and declared Dargan a fool. He informed Carol that the majority of blacks are ignorant and not fit to vote. They can be bought and sold like cattle and will do whatever their bosses tell them. The Democrats will carry this election even if all the angels in hell, the devil, all the niggers and conservatives combine against us. Tillman's invective reflected white Democrats' continuing commitment to a political color line. Despite Democratic warnings that the Negroes are working hard for Dargan, Dargan's campaign to elect anti-disenfranchisement delegates languished. And that is where we will pick up <clears throat> next week. We have three sessions left. Uh, we'll be on 211 top of 211 and I think that is a sentence worth repeating the Democrats will carry this election even if all the angels in hell the devil all the niggers and conservatives combine against us hmm. right on context of white supremacy number to dial is 760 Five six nine seven six seven six. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. We should have a, about a half hour ample time. If folks have anything that stood out you would like to share, feel free. Uh, everyone who dialed in. Has a hand up. Feel free to chime in. Mr. Jimmy Four, person who called in from a blocked number, should be with us. I will nab other hands as I see them. Proceed if you have uh, thoughts to share. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh... I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, it's, uh, we're talking about using some blacks as spies <clears throat> uh, within the party. I lost myself there, but uh, when this Tillmanite, Samson Pope, withdrew his, uh, his pledge to abide by the reform, primary. It's 207, page 207. This guy was in opposition. Well, first, he was on the side of Tillman. And then he ran against him. And I think that was a significant uh, point. But uh, the way they use the word reform, you know, Tillman was running on uh, reform ideology, which he actually did just the opposite. So they were using words 
you know, that had double meanings because she really was not reforming anything. And I, they, while disenfranchisement was a goal of Tillman towards blacks, the Democrats used great effort to make sure that they didn't disfranchise any whites. So almost everything that they would come up with, the eight-box system or the literacy test, and then later on, I guess, the poll tax and all that, they always put in certain provisions so that it would not hinder uh, white votes. And then, even if they could just do away with a portion of black votes, they would be satisfied because there was all this election fraud going on where they were saying people were voting voting uh, in absence, and also they were stuffing ballot boxes and actually uh, getting rid of uh, votes. When Tillman went to the Senate and replaced him, Butler on the 209, it's almost like the same ideology. But they were just replacing one race for the other. And that wasn't even a, a blip in uh, the way the machinery was working. And on page 209, the black ministers assembled in Columbia to try to organize against uh, disenfranchisement. But uh, they kind of summed it up at the uh, at the bottom where it said that as they had done in other moments of crisis, black ministers assembled in Colombia to organize against disfranchisement, urging black men to vote for candidates who promised right and justice to all men. This limited meaning of the word fight reflected how restricted black Republicans' room for maneuver had become. So it was almost like no matter what you come up with and how you assemble and what strategies you came up with, it really was nothing that you could do. And then last, the Reverend Richard Carroll, the black minister who tried, it looked like from 1890, Tell even to 1908 to try to get Tillman to consider some of the interests of black people and speak at some conventions and all of his invitations and everything. Uh, <laughs> and Tillman just made it plain at the end. You know, I guess he was ignoring the guy, and then he just finally made it clear to him. You know what standing on on the steps of a plantation house, the new senator looked down at him and declared dogging at food. He informed Carol that the majority of blacks was ignorant and not fit to vote. They can be bought and sold like cattle and they'll do whatever they bosses tell them. And you already said the, the other part because they already knew that they had the electoral process sold up. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Uh, the uh, other caller from a block number, 
uh, and our caller uh, in Ohio uh, should be with us as well. Um, I have a block number, and I'm from Ohio, so I don't know. if I think there's another woman from Ohio that calls, but I usually try to unblock to get to, I'm... I meant to do the, the Star 82 thing before calling, but I uh, was anxious to call in after uh, listening to the chapter on voting and living in Ohio. Uh, I remember listening to um, Amos Wilson, who I, you know, I think is is a god, and. Uh, Amos was talking about the 1992 election in Louisiana when David Duke almost became governor. And he said that what prevented David Duke from becoming governor was the black vote. But he said, don't look at it as a victory because they'll come back with something else. And what he said, they will attack the vote. And that's exactly what they've done. In uh, 2000 here in Ohio, 2004, it was absolute chaos. I mean, it was the worst. I I can't explain, and I, I, I know you've got other callers from Ohio, but it was just awful what went down here in 2000, 2004. Um, where I went to vote, and they have, of course, these electronic machines, die bold, and, you know, when you go in and you look at the the machine, and at each um, name on the ballot, there's a light blinking. And when you press the one you want to vote for, the light stops blinking. Well, in 2000, when I went into the voting booth, none of the lights were blinking. They were stationary, which indicates those machines had already been voted on. And my brother, where he voted, he said he voted for Kerry in 2004, and it jumped back to Bush. My other brother said that one of his co-workers got a letter from George Bush's campaign thanking her for voting for him, and she said she didn't vote for George George Bush. So, uh, you know, the, the thing, issue of voting is, I, I, quite frankly, Gus, I don't think we've had a, a, a an honest election in Ohio probably since the 90s. I mean, I think this thing of stealing vote has been going on for a while. I mean, the electronic machines uh, have just made it easier. But, you know, if you go to freedocumentaries.org, and I'm sure that most of your, because your audience is well-informed, there are numerous documentaries about Ohio's voting on freedocumentaries.org. I mean, this is, the whole world knows about it. But it has never made the mainstream of American media. And so um, that means the Republicans have continued to steal elections. Um, the, there are two lawyers here that are still working on Wall Street. <clears throat>
I just wanted to, to hop in because it's, uh, it's not no apology needed. Just this is not uh, on Ohio per se. This is a book study session on the book. So we're trying to okay. make sure people are commenting about the uh, the book specifically and their things. And it's not just a Republican thing because this is the Democrats here who are fraudulently stealing all these elections. Yeah, it, it's just that, you know, what's old is new again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what I'm, I guess, basically what I want to say. Absolutely, absolutely. Long practice uh, of electoral fraud uh, in this area of the world, worldwide, really. Uh, and that's something folks can keep in mind the next time any of these white people want to step up and shake their finger uh, and anybody on the continent and criticize uh, their election or chastise them for how many terms they have served. Just, you know, you can reference Ben Tillman and democracy in South Carolina. Um, Other folks with us have any other comments they want to get in? Um, Can I be heard? Yep. Can I be heard? Good evening, everyone. It's Carmen. Um, all of that stuff is so prevalent right now. <laughs> it's hard not to. I mean, it's just like he just wrote this yesterday. That game has not changed one bit. I mean, not even one bit. So I said I have to read this to find out if there's a solution somewhere. I mean, you guys are gifted. In reading this, I see all of the people who are today, you know, the black people who want to, oh, if we could just get closer to the white people and the pastors who, you know, oh, you know, we just want a little bit for us. And, you know, the black people who just get in white people's face and say, oh, please, 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 can we be your friend? I can help you. I can help you. I mean, all of those people are all over the place right now. I, I'm just wondering, did you guys get some kind of clarity out of this to see anything in our electoral process that we might be able to Maybe grab a little power and then just use that to hijack the whole thing. Anybody? Something? Anything? No. I mean, my <laughs> pond is. <laughs> okay, all right. All right, that's fine. That's fine. So that's fine. I'm just, you know, I'm always talking about this little pond that I'm in, and I have managed to hijack some of it over the last couple of years, but the white people are real jittery, and they're so jittery. I'm not giving anything back. I'm going to hijack the rest if I can. I'm not giving anything back. But, uh, mm. but you are right. You are right. Their, their latest tactic is the uh, voting administrator resigned last week. There's no one to watch the election. Mm. Um. Okay. That's all I have to say. I'm sorry. I, I was just listening to that. It just sounded so familiar. I was hoping uh, there was a solution in there that maybe somebody saw something that, that I could use to ex- exploit the little hijack I've done. Nothing. There's nothing there. Nothing. It might be. Okay. Maybe some of the folks listening, if you see something that we can use, um, you know, a strategy, a tactic that might help, uh, something in terms of trying to use the uh, electoral process. If, if you see something, definitely share. You can chime in tomorrow or drop an email. We, I might just have missed it or we might just have missed it. But, yeah, if you see anything stands out. Um, for me, if anything, just being aware that white people are not ignorant and you can just expect that they're going to continue these same type of schemes uh, that you're seeing in this book. As everybody has said, this sounds so familiar. Um, just having that in mind, I mean, maybe folks can kind of uh, 
they call it recalibrate your expectations and then kind of keep all that into consideration because I don't think <clears throat> I don't think we uh, have an in-depth understanding of how long this sort of uh, intricate fraudulent behavior has been going on and particularly to keep black people from being able to you know participate uh, in the election process on an uh, on a just basis but you have anybody got anything feel free share anything stood out you think we could use a strategy the only thing that works the first time is just to ignore white people just ignore white people of course they'll come after you eventually but ignoring them in the beginning is is good I think certainly not trying to be their friends like all of these black people they're so confused there's so many states of confusion they're all at different levels of confusion guys that's what I'm hearing they're all like okay some of them like you know we want to be friends with white people oh no we want to be you know have a fusion thing going on with white people and some of them are like no we don't want to vote at all we don't want all everybody's confusion level is so different they're all over the place there's no way any of those people in South Carolina can get together because they, they're all at different states of confusion they're all over the place did seem like the black people from last week who lynched a white man who uh, sexually molested a black female did seem like there were some black people who uh, they were clear about things and had some some black self-respect. It did seem like we've we've heard it was some black people this week who went out and, and accosted some white folks. It did seem like there were a few black people who were very clear about what the problem is and tried as best they could, you know, to uh, do what they could under terrible. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. I mean, all this. You're right. The, the students, the students at the historical uh, black university, they're like, oh, gosh, as of the first, we can all get guns and we can have urban carry. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, it's like, whoa. So, you know, it's it's it, it's war now. I mean, it'll just we just wind up slaughtering one another after that. <sighs> See, they're like, oh, yeah, open carry on campus, black college, five young people. We can get this done. I'm like, oh, man. And white people didn't like hearing that in court at all. So, anyway. All right. You're right. There's some people, the students are less confused than I thought they were. They're much less confused than the old people, just like you always say. The young people are not that confused. They may be confused about what they they will be able to do, but they 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 have some pretty good numbers. They really do. And they are being targeted, so. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening to that. I appreciate that, guys. I'm just going to have to get this get this book and really read it and see if they can find something useful in it. Right on. Uh, library. I hope at the library. I hope uh, folks don't uh, give Mr. Kantrowitz, uh too many nickels uh, picking up this. Get used copy or library. I got a used copy, uh, folks. FYI, I got a used copy and I have other used ones on Amazon. And you can save a few nickels too. Um, you know, just FYI. Uh, the caller at mm. uh, at uh, 5234, did you have something you wanted to share as well? 5234. Oh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers and the listeners. Um, I had to find something kind of telling in the very beginning of Chapter 6 um, when we started reading. Uh, it's a section that says, as long as substantial numbers of black men remain potentially eligible to vote, divisions are made white men will continue to impel Turner's vision, as in 1880, 1882, 1890, and 1892, dissident white men might appeal to black voters. If they won, they would overturn all of the progress made since 1876. Turner therefore called for a new state constitution, one 
carefully crafted to exclude most black men and safeguard Anglo-Saxon supremacy, the government, and our civilization. That section was so telling to me and it spread out because essentially they're equating progress with white supremacy. So anything that they, that they consider making leaps and bounds in progress has to do with the progress of white supremacy. Then they also tell you that um, in, this, in the later section we talked about uh, Anglo-Saxon supremacy, good government, and our civilization. So they're telling you their government is white supremacist, their entire civilization is white supremacist, don't expect anything except the progress of white supremacy, and it's almost like they put everything almost in plain sight for you every day, but we get so conditioned to dealing with the system and dealing with these individual uh, racist suspects and just overt racist that I think we become almost anesthetized to how much they're telling us what they've always done and what they're continuing to do. That's why I think we're seeing parallels where, you know, a lot of calls are saying nothing has really changed. And um, as far as what the previous caller was asking in reference to something we can take um, from the political system to try and flip things upside down, I, I personally don't think it's possible because the system is just completely corrupt. Um, and in my opinion, like, to me, it's like going to a corrupt system trying to overturn something that's already inherently flawed and corrupt from the very beginning. So I, I think, like um, Minister Malcolm said, we need to just tear everything completely down and start from scratch. Because um, I don't think there's really a way to, to do anything because the system is almost like a, it's almost like white people are one body. And they have these contingency plans that metamorphose that directly deal with any form of attack that groups of people come up with against white supremacy. So um, I just think it's going to be really, really hard to work within that system to do something like that. And I'm going to get my line. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, we have about 15 left. Uh, folks have things they want to make sure they get in uh, in the last few minutes. 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have a question. Just that last portion uh, with Reverend Carroll, he's gone. He's talking to um, Governor, Senator now, Senator Tillman, uh, to get him to come and, and talk to some of the, the black citizens and Booker T. Washington and what have you. And I'm trying to imagine, like, okay, I'm a black person and, you know, maybe I live in South Carolina or wherever else I'm here. And they are like, you know, we're trying to get Governor Tillman, you know, to come and talk to us. Like, if I know who this guy is, like at all, if I if I live in South Carolina, I know who this guy is, Hamsburg Massacre and all that. He's been governor for a while, so presumably I know, you know, something about Ben Tillman and what he thinks of niggers. Uh, why would I want to listen to this guy? <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm trying to think, like, what are we going to do? Like, is this, are we going to kill him? Or <laughs> what? Like, is this, let me in. Like, what is this? Like, are, are you serious? Like, we're just going to sit and listen to him talk for an hour or 30 minutes and tell us how dumb and ignorant we are and the threat of dominate. like I'm just trying to envision like what this what is the purpose of having them to come speak like I realize this is the governor and later the senator right they have an obligation to come in and address I'm just I mean I don't know what could be fruitful uh that's almost like I could see what he said uh Mr. Tillman what he ultimately said to Reverend Carroll, uh, calling him a fool and, you know, whatever else. I could see him just going to the convention and saying that, like, you all are doing 
dumb and ignorant and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I mean, anyway, um, checking back at some of the other things that stood out over the uh, chapter six, which we are not done yet. Uh, all of these uh, brawls with other white people, uh, I still did not really see anything where you have a group of white people that are saying, you know, forget this white supremacy stuff, man. Like this is all, this is what white supremacy produces. The character of men and women, white men and women like Ben Tillman. And we don't need any more of this. Like, I don't see that. Like the people that are not with him, they just don't like the things that he's doing that are mistreating other white people that are either disrupting other white people's ability to vote, or he's messing up our ability to go and, uh, get our fire water uh, without having to go be fleeced by the governor and them making all you know this money and what have you it does not seem to be around we have a problem with the way that you're treating black people we just don't like the way that you are operating the plantation we don't like your particular rules and I mean you talk about gangster move like I'm going to leave the governorship I'm going to pick the person that I want to take my job and help them get elected. And I'm going to just move to the U.S. Senate, not just state Senate, but move to the U.S. Senate. That is, I mean, wow. You talk about gangster. That is gangster. And again, if it's not white supremacy and you just want to represent on, hey, we like gangsters. We like people that are politicians and they are straight mobsters. They just go in with cronyism and make as much money as we can do whatever we want to Debo elections. We steal elections. We commit fraud. That's how we get that. Fine. Fine. If that's what they're celebrating at Clemson, if that's what they want to honor at the South Carolina state Capitol, fine. If uh, Winthrop university, fine, wherever else they have his statues up. But I don't think that's what it is. All of that is in conjunction with, and with the foremost principle being domination of black people. That's why I think those are there and we're almost at the finish line. So we should be able to come to some conclusions about what we think about this book and Ben Tillman. Um, let's see, checking out a few of the other parts uh, earlier. I thought it was important too, Demi, before I already brought it up uh, in terms of the black people that were Republicans at the time, how they were being spied on and controlled, uh, them working to make sure that they uh, could not vote or to, to lower their participation in elections by as much as possible. Uh, I'd said last week, the fact that uh, black people greatly outnumber uh, white people in South Carolina, that that is something that we should keep in mind because that's, that is a big part of the motivating factor behind uh, the way they're thinking, the way that they are behaving. Uh, I didn't know that the number was that immense in uh, Mississippi as well, where I think it was a pretty, uh, Pretty big in, in terms of at least a large number of black people uh, in Mississippi as well. Uh, I thought the passage on 204, uh, second paragraph, uh, where they're talking about the number of people that got are not being allowed to vote, even white people are not being allowed to vote, where it says in 1890, a Kansas newspaper noted critically that 79,000 South Carolina voters elected the same number of congressmen as 300. 34,000 Kansans. By 1894, that charge was echoed by a congressman who placed South Carolina's total population of more than 1 million in awkward contrast with its turnout, which had shrunk to 70,000. I think that's important because in one of our uh, broadcasts earlier this year, with a guest in South Carolina, no less, uh, I think that came up about black people not voting. And I think that's something that I've uh, heard consistently throughout my life uh in in a sort of chastising manner 
uh, black people being rebuked and saying, well, it's your fault because you didn't vote. I even heard some of that last um, last summer since we're the one year anniversary of Michael Brown's uh, assassination, black people in uh, the Ferguson area being chastised saying, well, you didn't vote. You didn't vote. You didn't vote. And that's another one. I think one we don't give, or maybe we don't have enough understanding or we are not giving enough credit to the effort, the labor that white people put into either not allowing black people to vote and or corrupting those votes, erasing those votes, tossing them out after they do so, which we've heard in this book in which people, you know, have testified to that have called in Cynthia McKinney. Uh, we had her on the program repeatedly, and she has a whole documentary talking about that happening repeatedly. Um, I also think in addition to to that aspect of it, I also think and I, I think I made this point earlier this year. A lot of white people don't vote. <laughs> and that's in the book, too. And I mean, hey, even white people can and do work to limit the number of white people that participate that's the big theme in the chapter uh the chapter that we're just on right now chapter six uh and a lot of white people being upset and saying hey he's he's potentially making it difficult for even some white people uh to be able to vote and they got the numbers to back that up so just to throw that out i think that uh, also is something that's important um you can come to your own conclusions about you know the efficacy of voting we've talked about that before but i do think regardless of what your conclusion is about all that i do think it's important uh just to put out there that white people they practice racism all the time all areas of people activity and that includes the voting box and any dialogue around that should include the astronomical labor that white people have and continue to put into uh disrupting and obliterating black people's ability and will even interest to vote uh folks have any other comments they want to get in I wanted to make another comment. Uh, it, they mentioned that there were large people in South Carolina and that there were certainly educated and uh, blacks that were well-to-do, I guess, you know. But the whole thing is that white people feel that any advancements that black people make is really a threat against their position. And whether they believe it or not, it's always evident when a black person rises to a certain position, then there's always this black backlash, you know, and uh, in earlier years, we saw that the attitude was like, well, some white man, uh, I, I think Bill Tillman calls him worthy white man, or uh, someone else is not qualified simply because uh, they are not white. And I just wanted to bring that point up. I'll mute my line. Absolutely. Uh, the <clears throat> other folks have things they want to share. Uh, we have about five minutes. I was just going to get in as well. There was uh, the op-ed piece in the Edgefield Advertiser, same newspaper. I think it's been quoted in this book repeatedly. It still exists, and they're still talking about Ben Tillman. Uh, there was an op-ed piece this week. I posted it on my Facebook page. This guy, uh, he basically writes and is saying that 
You know, before we look at Ben Tillman and judge him too harshly, he had to work like a dog to save his plantation and his family after the ravages of the Civil War and any animosity that he or any other white people in South Carolina may have had at the time to Negroes or whatever was happening. You have to put yourself in their shoes. They lost everything. The devastation of the war, the white male population was eviscerated and I mean they were just struggling. Anybody in that situation would have resorted to the antics of the red shirt and that's not you know hyperbole that's what he said anybody white person black person anybody would have done exactly what ben tillman the red shirts did go out and terrorize folks uh if they were upset and feeling that their whole way of life had been thrashed that that's reasonable behavior and he goes on and to talk about his political career and what he did and saying that it's false to say that ben tillman uh, was a murderer, even though the coroner found reason to indict him uh, for one of the black people that was killed uh, in all the mayhem uh, with 76, even though he was never uh, charged. I don't think anybody was ever charged. Uh, but it lengthy, lengthy report. I sent it to uh, Mr. Kantrowitz to check out. He's still uh, out of the country. So, you know, we'll see for end of the month, maybe if he's back in the States to get him on the program. Uh, but I sent it to him and uh, I could read you his response, but, but like he just, uh, he didn't want to call it out as blatantly as, you know, this is, this is total nonsense. This is just a white, or I can't even say nonsense. This is a white person practicing racism, white supremacy in the way that they are talking about and minimizing the terroristic conduct of Ben Tillman. Uh, at any rate, I'll, I'll stop there. The article, it's on the Facebook page already. Anybody have anything they wanted to make sure they got in last uh, minute or so before we wrap things up? Everyone content? Right on. I will assume folks uh, are good. We should be picking up uh, at that same spot uh, right after uh, the disrespect of Reverend Carroll, but we should be picking up there at the top of 211 uh, for next week to finish out on Chapter 6. Um, yeah, I'm very eager because we really haven't spent a whole lot of time on education. That's what's coming up next week. That should be grand uh, because I think it'll have the portion in the book where he talks about funding, uh, funding, federal funding for Clemson University also being tied to black people getting funding for education. So I'm hoping that they'll go into detail about that as well. But that should be coming up for next week. Call her at 2456. Did you have something you wanted to get in before we wrapped up 2456? Yes. Um I just wanted to say the main themes that I'm getting from this because I've been listening, I've been listening every every time, but it's kind of hard for me to pitch in because I always have a lot of people around me. Um, main themes I'm getting from it is that saying that was in there that you keep saying about the fear of black domination. They do not want us to rule over them, and also all white people must comply with racism, white supremacy, or there's a a very high price to pay up to and including death. And that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate that. If that's, you know, even if half of the people listening, a quarter of the people listening, if that's what you leave with from listening to this book, that white people are not ignorant about racism, that they are expected and required to practice and participate in racism, white supremacy. And if they don't, there are consequences. <laughs> white people's fear uh, of black people 
taking over, viewing black people as some sort of threat that needs to be neutralized. Excellent. Excellent. And I would, again, all of this should be attached to Charleston Massacre. That's why we're reading this book, Charleston Massacre, that hopefully that this will also give us a better uh, appreciation or understanding for why those non-black people had to die uh, June 17th at Mother Emanuel and the mentality, the white mentality that guarantees Dylan Storm Bruce. Right on. Uh, I will assume folks uh, are good. Everybody got out everything they wanted to to get in. Uh, we should be back uh, tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing should be making her 29th visit uh, this Sunday. Uh, she was saying, uh, at least in her opinion, uh, it seems that uh, the events at the Charleston South Carolina church uh, have largely receded to the background where that is not even really uh, something that's being discussed or focused on too much uh, at this point. She had some commentary on some of the other things that have happened over the past 30 days, but it'll be great to get her back on the program this Sunday uh, a little bit earlier, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, just out of respect, I try to be on a little bit earlier so we're not keeping Dr. Welsing up too late, but she should be here uh, Sunday afternoon, 7 or Depending on where you are, 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific uh, this Sunday. Tune in, share, let folks know should be a constructive exchange. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning into the broadcast. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. If you're going to go out, frolic, enjoy your summer, that's great. Just make sure that you're codified. Uh, definitely around any alcohol, intoxicants. You want to make the best decisions possible. No alcohol if you're going to get behind the wheel. Really, the best decision under conditions of white supremacy, sobriety would be best. If you can't do that, again, be codified. No alcohol if you're going to get behind the wheel. Definitely, I say you do not want to be around any white people that are under the influence. You do not want to be under the influence if there are white people around. I would even say be very cautious about the other non-white people that you're around. If they are under the influence or intoxicated, it's too many times where we just get a lot of unnecessary and easily avoidable problems as a result of being intoxicated and not making the best choices on a planet dominated by white terrorism. So definitely be codified. Buckle your seatbelt. That is one that I, I picked this on vacation, just seeing other non-white people uh, getting vehicles consistently and driving and are not buckling your seatbelt. We've sat, or at least I think a lot of us have sit and watched and been sad or outraged about Sandra Bland and Mr. DuBose and all these other incidents of black people being mauled and molested and harassed and killed and everything else beaten uh, when they are in a vehicle Man, do everything that you can to minimize the likelihood of having contact with race soldiers. And if five seconds to buckle your seatbelt, man. Uh, and, and I say that just because I was asking people like, man, do you get stopped? I mean, that is a law, right? Do you get stopped? And I was consistently hearing people say, yep, I've been stopped. I have been ticketed. $180 ticket here, there. Man, do everything you possibly can to minimize the likelihood of Darren Wilson, Dan Pantaleo, uh, Insinia, any of these other race soldiers stopping you and having to go through all of that, buckle your seatbelt. That's an easy counter-racist uh, strategy you can employ right there. Uh, we will be back in about 24 hours. If you get confused or have input, feel free. You can email and we'll read it out uh, on the program 
as we go. Thanks for all the folks who participated. It was great, and we will be back tomorrow. Creator, it has been time. Help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. Help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Help us to produce a little bit more courage each day to honestly and scientifically confront the system of white supremacy. It has been time. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for listening in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.